Comparative Cataloging Rules, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Comparative Cataloging Rules by Teresa Hitchler, Part 2. Added Entry Under Editor, Compiler, Translator, etc. ALA For editors of periodicals, when the periodicals are generally called or known by the editor's name. For important translators, especially poetical translators and commentators. References are to be made to headings chosen. ALA Revised, Not Specified Bodleian For commentaries with the text, editions of the text, and translations, make added entries A. Under the heading of the original work, and B. Under the name of the commentator, editor, or translator. Commentaries without the text are to be entered under the same two headings, the second being placed first. Names of translators, commentators, editors, and preface writers, if they do not occur in the title page, may be added in brackets, a further heading or cross-reference being made when necessary. British Museum For translators, commentators, or annotators, also for editors, or biographers who have prefixed an author's life to his works, whether their names appear in the title or are supplied from the book itself. Cutter For editors of periodicals commonly known by the editor's name, for editors and translators habitually mentioned in connection with a work, and for those who have made poetical versions, for translators of anonymous works, and for translators, editors, etc., of oriental works, in any case where the book would be sought under the name of the editor, compiler, etc., recommends many cross-references. Jewett For translators, editors, commentators, continuators, or other persons named on the title page, as participating in the authorship of the work. References from important words in title of anonymous book, from biography, separate authors in a collection, etc. LAUK Names of translators, commentators, editors, and preface writers, if they do not occur in the title page, may be added within square brackets an added entry or cross-reference being made in each case. Joint authors, separate items of a collection, important words in title of anonymous books, and compiler of catalogues have entries. Library School, same as Cutter. Linderfelt recommends numerous cross-references and full added entries. Perkins, for important commentators and translators, in case of doubt and in very short cataloging, omit. 
cross-references from some synonym of a single heading should often have the shelf mark title entries for drama fiction and striking titles wheatley not specified large use of references will be required with proper use of a catalogue no real necessity to copy titles in large majority of cases order and items of imprint including paging ala after the title are to be given in the following order those in brackets being optional edition place of publication publisher these three in the language of the title the year as given on the title page but in arabic figures the year of copyright or actual publication if known to be different in brackets and preceded by c or p as the case may be the number of volumes or of pages if there is only one volume the number of maps portraits or illustrations not included in the text and either the approximate size designated by letter or the exact size in centimeters the series note to be given in parentheses after the other imprint entries after the place of publication the place of printing may be given if different this is desirable only in rare and old books ala revised place of publication publisher's name both in language of title year year of copyright or actual publication if known to be different in brackets preceded by cop pub etc number of volumes or of pages if there is only one volume illustrations plates portraits maps etc size to be given in centimeters the name of the series if the book belong to a series is to be given in parenthesis after the imprint bodleian edition number of volumes if more than one place of publication followed by the place of printing when different in brackets publisher and printer in the case of books of the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries or of special value or rarity date in arabic figures and size does not give the number of pages maps etc british museum edition to be stated in the title as part of it number of parts or volumes in the words of the title place of printing printer in the case of early or eminent typographers date size for example duodecimo cutter place of publication in language of the title page publisher date number of volumes pages maps engraving and the like and typographic form imprint indispensable in catalog designed for scholars jewett volumes in language of title page place date publisher in rare books size pages if not more than one hundred main paging only 
LAUK Edition as specified on the title page Number of volumes If only one volume, the number of pages Number of separate illustrations, maps, or portraits Size Place of publication Place of printing when different from that of publication Publisher's name Date of actual publication in square brackets Library School Edition in English Pages or volumes if more than one Illustrations Group of portraits Portrait of a group Portraits, plates, photographs, maps Facsimiles Tables Size by letter Maps, broadsides, etc. Height and width in centimeters No title page if there never was any Place in language of title Publisher's last name in books before 1600 A.D. in language of title. Date. Copyright date if differing more than a year from date of publication. Series note in curves. Parentheses. Give extremes of various editions. If volumes of a set have different sizes, specify volumes of each size. Give extreme dates when the volumes of a set differ. Make corrections and additions in English enclosed in brackets. Linderfelt, not specified. Perkins. Description is written in continuation of title name. The order of the various items is thus. Edition of original work. Translator. Editor of translation. Editor, Volumes, Maps, Portraits, Illustrations, Including Plates. Description should always be in English, unless in case of a separate catalogue of foreign books. Imprint follows the description. It states in the following order, Size, for example, duodecimo, Pages, if less than 100, Place, abbreviated, Publisher's name when given. Date. Copyright date if it differ more than one year. Do not use the forms ND, NP, NTP. A note may state the defective condition of a book. Wheatley. Volumes, edition, size, place in language of title page. Date. Exact paging for single volume. Size. In old and rare books, the name of the publisher may be added with advantage. Cataloger must seek for date until he finds it. Contents and Notes ALA Notes in English and contents of volumes are to be given when necessary to properly describe the works. Both notes and lists of contents to be in a smaller type. ALA Revised Notes and contents of volumes are to be given when necessary to properly describe the works. The notes to be in English, unless consisting of foreign quotations from the book itself or from other sources. Bodleian Contents to be given when expedient. Notes when necessary. Round brackets include notes desired from the book itself, 
while square brackets include notes of which the matter or form is independent of the work. British Museum Any striking imperfection or peculiarity is to be noted. If an early printed book, and in Gothic or black letter, add GL or BL at the end of the title, works printed on vellum to be distinguished by these words in small italic capitals and editio princeps by edpr and copies on large or fine paper by the letters lp or fp in italic capitals at the end of the title manuscript notes to be indicated by the words ms notes at the end of title if the notes be few or the reverse prefix few or copious to above if the author of the manuscript notes be known or if the volume belonged to some distinguished person add this information in brackets at the end of entry cutter give under the author a list of the contents of books containing several works by the same author or by several authors or works on several subjects, or a single work on a number of subjects. When a single work fills several volumes, give the contents under the author. Under the subject, repeat so much of the contents as is necessary to show how the subject is treated, or what part is treated in the different volumes. Arrange contents either in the order of the volumes, or alphabetically by the titles of the articles. Put into notes in small type that information which is not given in the title, but is required by the plan of the catalogue. Jewett. It may be found desirable to add explanations to render a title satisfactorily descriptive, to specify if a book be a rare and valuable one, or privately printed, limited to a small number of copies, prohibited, etc., or if there are any peculiarities or imperfections of copy. In these or any other cases where it seems necessary to give further information about a work than could be included within the title, it may be added in the form of separate notes. LAUK, same as ALA. Library School, Give notes in English and contents of volumes in smaller letters, generally only on subject card, when necessary properly to describe the work. Notes about the author and on imperfections in the copy go on both cards, other notes generally on subject card only. Note manuscript annotations if they seem to add to the value of the work. Linderfelt, not specified. Perkins. Give contents in the case of the complete works of an author in smaller type, not alphabeted, but in their order in the book. Apply same rule in case of any volume by one author containing more than one publication. Notes and contents are either inserted in parenthesis within title or appended below the title. If not more than two lines long, insert in the title in parenthesis, 
if longer, append in small type, and begin with the word note or contents. Note facts necessary to properly describe the work. Notes should explain the relation of works of fiction to the historical or other subjects which they illustrate. Wheatley, when the contents of a set of works are very varied, a short abstract of the contents of each volume may be added. Alphabetical order of entries is suggested. Series cards under the title or editor of the series. Cross-references are understood. ALA. Enter under editors of collections. Each separate item to be at the same time sufficiently catalogued under its own heading. ALA revised, not specified. Bodleian. Enter under editors of collections and under catch titles of such collections the parts to be at the same time sufficiently catalogued under their own headings british museum in any series of printed works which embraces the collected productions of various writers upon particular subjects the work to be entered under the name of the editor if the editor's name do not appear the whole collection to be entered under collective title. Cutter. Series known chiefly by its title to be entered under name of series. Older collections known by their collectors' names may be entered under collector. Societies are collectors of the series of works published by them, of which a list should be given under their names. Jewett. The complete works or entire treatises of several authors, published together in one series with a collective title, to be recorded in the words of the general title of the series, and to be placed under the editor if known. If he is not known, under the title of the collection, like anonymous works. L.A.U.K. Same as Bodleian. Library School Enter under editor of the series, if known, unless the series is better known by title, in which case enter under title. Linderfelt A collection of writings by different authors under a collective title is entered under title with cross-reference from the editor or editors. If the work is a collection of bibliographically independent writings, each author receives a full separate entry of his work, with the title of the collection given in parenthesis. Perkins. Collections of works by separate authors should be catalogued under the title of the series, with author entries for each separate work. Not worthwhile to catalog such works as Seaside Library in this way. Very short series note, use abbreviations. Pamphlets should be sorted, and those on one subject bound together. Letter the back with subject and with the word pamphlets with a volume number. This gives a subject entry under which the contents may be catalogued. Wheatley, not specified. 
societies etc under city or corporate name cross references are understood ala enter under the first word not an article of its corporate name with references from any other name by which it is known especially from the name of the place where its headquarters are established if it is often called by that name ala revised enter a society under the first word not an article or serial number of its corporate name with reference from any other name by which it is known especially from the name of the place where its headquarters are established enter societies extending through many lands or having authorized names in many languages under the english form of the name unless no publications have appeared in english in which case they are to be entered under the name of the society in the language in which most of the publications have appeared enter colleges of an english university and the professional schools of an american university under the university's name enter college libraries and local college societies under the name of the college intercollegiate societies and greek letter fraternities should go under their names enter alumni and alumnae associations under the name of the school or college enter american public schools under the name of the city or town maintaining them whether they have an individual name or not enter guilds under the name of the city with subheading for the name of the trade enter academies under the first word not an article or a titular designation enter national libraries museums and galleries etc under the name of the city except those having decidedly individual names as those named from persons or with names derived from other proper nouns american state universities etc under the name of the state enter universities galleries etc called imperial royal national etc under the name of the place except the national gallery in london enter churches under the name of the place a few cathedrals generally known by some other name may be entered under their names bodleian enter under the leading word or words of its corporate name british museum enter assemblies boards or corporate bodies with the exception of academies universities learned societies etc under name of country or place from which they derive their denomination or from which their acts are issued academies institutes associations universities or societies to be catalogued under the general head academies and entered alphabetically according to the english name of the country or towns where their sittings are held institutions and societies not coming under head academies deriving their title from a proper name and not that of a country or place to be entered under such proper name churches to be entered under names cathedrals named from cities under the name of the city 
religious and military orders entered under the English name by which they are generally known. Cutter. Enter under name A. Churches not numbered and not named from the place. B. Societies not local. C. English and American academies. D. Colleges, universities, libraries, galleries, museums, having an individual name. E. Private schools. F. Business firms and corporations. G. London guilds, name of trade. Enter under place. A. Churches numbered or otherwise named from the place. B. Societies purely local. C. Academies and universities of the European continent and of South America. D. National or municipal colleges, libraries, galleries, museums, not having an individual name. E. Public schools. F. Municipal corporations. G. State historical and agricultural societies under name of state. Jewett. Publications of all academies, universities, associations, societies, and other bodies of men of whatever character, to be entered under the first word of the corporate name, not an article. When committees or branches of a body issue publications, the heading is to be the name of the chief, not the subordinate body. Publications of literary and other societies connected with colleges and universities to be entered under the name of the colleges, etc. LAUK, same as ALA. Library School. Enter under first word not an article of its corporate name. Enter local societies under place. Linderfelt. Enter under name A. Churches, monasteries, cathedrals, convents that have an individual name. B. Societies not local. C. English and American academies. D. Libraries, galleries, museums, and English and American universities and colleges which have an individual name. E institutions connected with a university or college, and local college societies under the name of the university or college. F. London guilds under the name of the profession. Enter under place. A. Cathedrals named from a city. B. Societies purely local. C. Academies and universities of the European continent and of South America. D. National or municipal colleges, libraries, museums, and galleries, etc., not having individual names. E. State historical, agricultural, and other societies. F. Public schools and municipal corporations. Perkins, same as ALA. Wheatley, enter under the name of the place where they have their headquarters. When place of meeting has been changed, 
arrange all under name of the last place of meeting. Departments and bureaus. Cross-references are understood. ALA. Enter under the names of countries, cities, societies, or other bodies which are responsible for their publication. ALA revised. Enter government bureaus or offices subordinate to a department directly under the country, not as subheadings under departments. Enter under the writer reports made to a department by a person who is not an official. When several persons make the report, the department may be considered as editor. Bodleian, same as ALA. British Museum, not specified. Cutter. Enter under name of office rather than title of officer. Individual name of the occupant may be added in parentheses, and should be so added when the publication has an individual character. There are cases where the title of the officer is the only name of the office. Reports to a department, but not by an official, are entered under the department. Jewett. The heading is to be the name of the body, the principal word to be the first word not an article. When committees or branches of a body issue publications, the heading is to be the name of the chief and not of the subordinate body. Thus, under United States would be placed all public documents issued at the expense of the United States, whether as regular public documents or by particular departments, bureaus, or committees. LAUK, same as ALA. Library School. For government departments, etc., use official name or enter subordinate bureaus directly under the bureau, and under the department give a list of all bureaus belonging to it under which entries have been made. Linderfelt. Enter under name of country, followed by legal name of governmental department or bureau, transposed if necessary, so as to bring the important word first. Reports made to a department, not by an official, are entered under the department, with either a new entry or a cross-reference, according to the importance of the report, under the name of the author. Perkins. Enter under United States public documents alphabetically by departments. Each bureau comes under the department to which it belongs. As far as possible, each separate document should also appear by author and subject in its alphabetical place in the main catalog. The separate individual cataloging of public documents should be carried as far as practicable. Wheatley, not specified. In heading, names of cities in vernacular or English. Cross-references are understood. ALA, names of places in English. When both an English and a vernacular form are used in English works, prefer the vernacular. ALA revised, same as ALA. Bodleian, 
in English, when no modern English form, vernacular to be used, where English form is not well established, prefer vernacular. British Museum, English form preferred. Cutter, in English, if both the English and foreign forms are used by English writers, prefer the foreign form. Jewett, not specified. LAUK, not specified. Library School, cities and towns in the vernacular, but larger political divisions in English, for example, Wien, not Vienna, but Austria, not Österreich. Linderfeld, names of countries and their larger divisions are given in English, smaller political divisions, cities and towns under the vernacular name. Cities and other places having more than one name, equally well established in different languages, are entered under the name current in the country to which they belong, with cross-reference from the others. When used as a title entry, use the same form as in the title. Perkins, not specified. Wheatley, not specified. Periodicals and Continuations ALA not specified ALA revised Enter a periodical under the first word, not an article or serial number, of its title. Main entry is made under last form of name. The following is the rule for the Library of Congress. For current periodicals, the following order is prescribed. 1. Short title, followed by two blank lines. Imprint, frequency of publication. 2. Beginning a new card, a bibliographical note to give in chronological order the various titles under which the periodical has been published. 3. Note giving briefly the successive editors. 4. Note giving changes in place of publication and publishers. 5. Statement on a new card of what is in the library, introduced by the phrase, Library has. 6. A separate concise entry for each series bearing a different title, with notes preceded by, continued as, or a direct reference to the current name. 7. Added entry under the names of editors, subjects, etc. When a periodical ceases to be published, the information contained on the card specified above under 5 is to be transferred to the two blank lines provided for the purpose on card 1, the former card being cancelled. On the other hand, if a periodical continues under a new name, the cards containing bibliographical notes and statements of what is in the library are placed after the new title. Under the old title there remains the usual brief entry, referring for continuation to the new name. In current titles the last date and the statement of the number of volumes are to be written in pencil. 
when the title of an annual report begins with an ordinal number, leave space one or two lines after the heading at the beginning of the title for ultimate insertion of the ordinal numbers. For example, Boston Public Library Annual Report. Leave space after report for the insertion of the name of the officer, board, etc., issuing the report, and for dates. Add, after imprint, report year ends March 31st, report year irregular, etc., as the case may be. State what the library has in the following form. Library has 1st through 16th. 1861 through 76, 16 volumes in two. Bodleian. Enter under the chief word of the titles of periodicals. British Museum. All magazines, newspapers, gazetteers, annuals, and works of a similar nature to be catalogued under the general head Periodical Publications the several entries to be made in alphabetical order according to the first substantive occurring in the title continuations to be entered under the name of the original work when printed with it otherwise under the name of the author cutter not specified jewett periodical publications are to be recorded in the words of the title page of the last complete volume but without designation of volume or date. The history of the publication from its commencement, including all changes of form, title, editorship, etc., is to be given in a note. This last title is preferred for the catalogue, but cross-references are to be made from former titles of periodicals when the publication is catalogued under an altered title or a new editor. This rule applies to reviews, magazines, etc., not to serials nor to transactions of learned societies. L.A.U.K. Not Specified Library School In current periodicals and continuations, give exact statement of volumes in library if the library contains less than half of what has been published. If it contains more than half, give in imprint statement of entire work and missing volumes in note. Of a set published at intervals, like Stephen's Dictionary of National Biography, give in imprint in pencil exact statement of what is in the library, correcting pencil entry upon receipt of each new volume, and entering in ink when complete. When a set is not complete, pencil dates and imprint. Linderfelt If the title of a continuation has an entry word differing from the one derived from the title of the preceding volumes, a cross-reference is made from each variation of the entry word to the entry word of the original part. The opposite course is followed, and the entry word of the continuation becomes the main entry word, with a cross-reference from the first part, in case the latter only forms a small part of the extensive work, 
or if the title of the work was changed after the appearance of the first few parts. Periodicals of which several series have appeared under different titles are entered each series by itself under its own entry word, with cross-references to both preceding and following series. Perkins In cataloging serials, reserve blank shelf marks for any back volumes wanting to a set, and for its future volumes. In cataloging periodicals and newspapers, give name, frequency of issue, unless specified in the name itself, volume numbers and corresponding years, and imprint. Omit from the imprint the date and the name of place, if name of place is part of name of periodical. Wheatley, not specified. Analysis, under author, subject, and title. ALA, separate items of collections to be catalogued under their own headings. ALA revised, not specified. Bodleian, same as ALA. British Museum, Analyze very fully under author and subject. Cutter. Enter in full every work forming part of a set, which fills a whole volume or several volumes. Enter analytically, that is, without imprint. Every work forming part of a set, which has a separate title page and paging, but forms only part of a volume. Every work which, though not having a title page, has been published separately. Under author, every separate article or treatise. Under subject, important treatises. Make analytical title references for stories in a collection. Make analyticals for the second and subsequent authors of a book written, not conjointly, by several authors. Often, in analysis, it may be worth while to make a subject entry, and not an author entry, or vice versa. Jewett. Make author analytical for any work in a collection, printed with a separate title page and an independent paging. L.A.U.K. Same as A.L.A. Library School. Analyze as much as can be afforded. Bring out separate items of collections, distinct parts of books, lives included in other works, and titles of all novels and plays given as contents. Linderfelt, not specified. Perkins. Catalog each separate work within a collection as if it were bound separately. If practicable, Analyze even essays, articles in periodicals, collections of bound pamphlets, and authors' complete works. Wheatley, not specified. Catalogues under library or compiler. ALA, not specified. Bodleian, enter under compiler, also as circumstances require under the names of one or more of the institutions or persons, now or formerly owning the collection, and, where desirable, under the collection itself. British Museum 
anonymous catalogues under catalogues subdivided thus one of public establishments including societies name of place two of private collections for sale or otherwise no cross-reference from possessor collector or possessor if stated otherwise under name of place when mentioned in the catalogue three of collections not for sale when possessor is not known alphabetically according to first substantive of the title four general and special catalogues of objects alphabetically under first substantive of title five dealers catalogues dealers name six sale catalogues not included in preceding chronologically with date expressed cross-reference to be made from the name of the compiler when supplied by the librarian and other than the collector or possessor of a collection or a dealer or an auctioneer note this cross-reference has so much of the title referred to as with size may identify the book cutter booksellers and auctioneers are to be considered as the authors of their catalogues unless the contrary is expressly asserted put the auctioneer's catalogue of a public library under the name of the library of a private library under the name of the owner unless there is reason to believe that another person made it in the latter case it would appear in the author catalogue under the maker's name and in the subject catalogue under the owner's name jewett catalogues of public libraries are to be entered under the name of the establishment and if the name of the compiler appears upon the title page make cross-reference lauk enter under name of library or owner of collection with cross-reference from name of compiler library school enter catalogues of private collections under owner catalogues of public collections under library responsible for its publication with added entry under compiler linderfelt booksellers and auctioneers are considered as the authors of their catalogues unless the contrary is expressly stated the catalogue of a private library is put under the owner's name even when sold at auction or otherwise with cross-reference from the compiler's name if known perkins enter the catalogue of a public library under its name but if it is a city or town library enter under the name of the town enter the catalogue of a private library under the owner's name a publisher's dealer's or auctioneer's catalogue under the name of the concern issuing it make no added entry for compiler or auctioneer for book auction catalogues when library is entered under owner's name wheatley enter under the heading catalogues with subheadings of the names of objects catalogued tracing cards in catalogue ala not specified ala revised not specified 
Bodleian, not specified. British Museum, not specified. Cutter, not specified. Jewett, not specified. LAUK, not specified. Library School. On main cards, singly underscore secondary entries and references. On secondary cards, doubly underscore main entry, but do not underscore secondary entries or references, unless they do not appear on main cards. For editor of series, singly underscore the first word in series note on main cards, and the editor on series cards. Note briefly in the lower right corner, on back of main card, all the subject headings chosen for the work. Linderfelt, not specified. Perkins, not specified. Wheatley, not specified. End of Comparative Cataloging Rules by Teresa Hitchler, Part 2 Recording by Maria Casper Chapter 12 of A Catechism of the Steam Engine This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Son of the Exiles A Catechism of the Steam Engine by John Bourne Manufacture and Management of steam engines construction of engines question seven hundred what are the qualities that should be possessed by the iron of which the cylinder of steam engines are made answer the general ambition in making cylinders is to make them sound and hard but it is expedient also to make them tough so as to approach as nearly as possible to the state of malleable iron. This may be done by mixing in the furnace as many different kinds of iron as possible, and it may be set down as a general rule in iron founding that the greater the number of the kinds of metal entering into the composition of any casting, the denser and tougher it will be. The constituent atoms of the different kinds of iron appear to be of different sizes, and the mixture of different kinds maintains the toughness while it adds to the density and cohesive power. Hot blast iron was at one time generally believed to be weaker than cold blast iron, but it is now questioned whether it is not the stronger of the two. The cohesive strength of unmixed iron is not in proportion to its specific gravity, and its elasticity and power to resist shocks appear to become greater as the specific gravity becomes less. Numbers three and four are the strongest irons. In most cases, iron melted in a coupler is not so strong as when remelted in an air furnace, and when run into green sand, it is not reckoned so strong as when run into dry sand or loam. The quality of the fuel and even the state of the weather exerts an influence on the quality of the iron. Smelting furnaces, on the cold blast principle, have long been known to yield better iron in winter than in summer, 
probably from the existence of less moisture in the air, and it would probably be found to accomplish an improvement in the quality of the iron if the blast were made to pass through a vessel containing muriate of lime by which the moisture of the air would be extracted. The expense of such a preparation would not be considerable, as, by subsequent evaporation, the salt might be used over and over again for the same purpose. Question 701. Will you explain the process of casting cylinders? Answer. The mould into which the metal is poured is built up of bricks and loam, the loam being clay and sand ground together in a mill, with the addition of a little horse dung to give it a fibrous structure and prevent cracks. The loam board, by which the circle of the cylinder is to be swept, is attached to an upright iron bar, at the distance of the radius of the cylinder, and a cylindrical shell of brick is built up, which is plastered on the inside with loam, and made quite smooth by traversing the perpendicular loam board round it. A core is then formed in a similar manner, but so much smaller as to leave a space between the shell and the core equal to the thickness of the cylinder, and into this space the melted metal is poured. Whatever nozzles or projections are required upon the cylinder must be formed by means of wooden patterns, which are built into the shell and subsequently withdrawn. But where a number of cylinders of the same kind are required, it is advisable to make these patterns of iron, which will not be liable to warp or twist while the loam is being dried. Before the iron is cast into the mould, the interior of the mould must be covered with finely powdered charcoal, or blackening as it is technically termed, and the secret of making finely skinned castings lies in using plenty of blackening. In loam and dry sand castings, the charcoal should be mixed with thick clay water and applied until it is an eighth of an inch thick or more. The surface should then be very carefully smoothed or slicked, and if the metal has been judiciously mixed and the mould thoroughly dried, the casting is sure to be a fine one. Dry sand and loam castings should be, as much as possible, made in boxes. The moulds may thereby be more rapidly and more effectually dried, and better castings will be got with a less expense. Question 702. Will you explain the next operation which a cylinder undergoes? Answer. The next stage is the boring, and in boring cylinders of 74 inches diameter, the boring bar must move so as to make one revolution in about four and a half minutes, at which speed the cutters will move at the rate of about five feet per minute. In boring brass, the speed must be lower. The common rate at which the tool moves in boring brass air pumps is about three feet per minute. If this speed be materially exceeded, the tool will be spoiled and the pump made taper. The speed proper for boring a cylinder will answer for boring the brass air pump of the same engine. A brass air pump of 36 and a half inches diameter requires the bar to make one turn in about three minutes, which is also the speed proper for a cylinder 60 inches in diameter. To bore a brass air pump 36 and a half inches in diameter requires a week, 
an iron one requires 48 hours, and a copper one 24 hours. In turning a malleable iron shaft, 12 and 3 quarter inches in diameter, the shaft should be made about 5 turns per minute, which is equivalent to a speed in the tool of about 16 feet per minute, but this speed may be exceeded if soap and water be plentifully run on the point of the tool. A boring mill, of which the speed may be varied from one turn in six minutes to twenty-five turns in one minute, will be suitable for all ordinary wants that can occur in practice. Question 703. Are there any precautions necessary to be observed in order that the boring may be truly effected? Answer. In fixing a cylinder into the boring mill, great care must be taken that it is not screwed down unequally, and indeed it will be impossible to bore a large cylinder in a horizontal mill without being oval, unless the cylinder be carefully gauged when standing on end, and be set up by screws when laid in the mill until it again assumes its original form. A large cylinder will inevitably become oval if laid upon its side, and if, while under the tension due to its own weight, it be bored round, it will become oval again when set upon end. If the bottom be cast in, the cylinder will be probably found to be round at one end and oval at the other, unless a vertical boring mill be employed. All the precautions here suggested be adopted. Question 704. Does the boring tool make the cylinder sufficiently smooth for the reception of the piston? Answer. Many engine makers give no other finish to their cylinders, but Messier's pen grind their cylinders after they are bored by laying them on their side and rubbing a piece of lead with a cross-iron handle like that of a rolling stone and smeared with emery and oil backward and forward. The cylinder being gradually turned round so as to subject every part successively to the operation. The lead by which this grinding is accomplished is cast in the cylinder, whereby it is formed of the right curve, but the part of the cylinder in which it is cast should be previously heated by a hot iron, else the metal may be cracked by the sudden heat. Question 705. How are the parts of a piston fitted together so as to be perfectly steam-tight? Answer. The old practice was to depend chiefly upon grinding as the means of making the rings tight upon the piston or upon one another, but scraping is now chiefly relied on. Some makers, however, finish their steam surfaces by grinding them with powdered turkey stone and oil. A slight grinding or polishing with powdered turkey stone and oil appears to be expedient in ordinary cases and may be conveniently accomplished by setting the piston on a revolving table and holding the ring stationary by a cross piece of wood while the table turns round. Pieces of wood may be interposed between the ring and the body of the piston to keep the ring nearly in its right position but these pieces of wood should be fitted so loosely as to give some side play, else the disposition would arise to wear the flange of the piston into a groove. Question 706. What kind of tool is used for finishing surfaces by scraping? Answer. 
a flat file bent and sharpened at the end makes an eligible scraper for the first stages or a flat file sharpened at the end and used like a chisel for wood a three-cornered file sharpened at all the corners is the best instrument for finishing the operation the scraping tool should be of the best steel and should be carefully sharpened at short intervals on a turkey stone so as to maintain a fine edge question seven hundred and seven will you explain the method of fitting together the valve and cylinder faces answer both faces must first be planed then filed according to the indications of a metallic straight edge and subsequently of a thick metallic faceplate and finally scraped very carefully until the faceplate bears equally all over the surface in planing any surface the catches which retain the surface on the planing machine should be relaxed previously to the last cut to obviate distortion from springing to ascertain whether the faceplate bears equally smear it over with a little red ochre and oil and move the faceplate slightly which will fix the colour upon the prominent points this operation is to be repeated frequently and as the work advances the quantity of colouring matter is to be diminished until finally it is spread over the faceplate in a thin film which only dims the brightness of the plate the surface at this stage must be rubbed firmly together to make the points of contact visible and the higher points will become slightly clouded while the other parts are left more or less in shade if too small a quantity of colouring matter be used at first it will be difficult to form a just conception of the general state of the surface as the prominent points will alone be indicated whereas the use of a large quantity of colouring matter in the latter stages would destroy the delicacy of the test the faceplate affords the number of bearing points which it is desirable to establish on the surface of the work depends on the use to which the surface is to be applied but whether it is to be finished with great elaboration or otherwise the bearing points should be distributed equally over the surface face plates or planometers as they are sometimes termed are supplied by most of the makers of engineering tools every factory should be abundantly supplied with them and also with steel straight edges and there should be a master face plate and a master straight edge for the sole purpose of testing from time to time the accuracy of those in use question seven hundred and eight is the operation of surfacing which you have described necessary in the case of all slide valves answer yes and in fitting the faces of a d valve great care must in addition be taken that the valve is not made conical for unless the back be exactly parallel with the face it will be impossible to keep the packing from being rapidly cut away when the valve is laid upon the face plate the back must be made quite fair along the whole length by draw filing according to the indications of a straight edge and the distance from the face to the extreme height of the back must be made identical at each extremity question seven hundred and nine when you described the operation of boring the cylinder you stated that the cylinder when laid upon its side became oval will not this change of figure distort the cylinder face answer it is not only in the boring of the cylinder 
that it is necessary to be careful that there is no change of figure, for it will be impossible to face the valves truly in the case of large cylinders unless the cylinder be placed on end or internal props be introduced to prevent the collapse due to the cylinder's weight. It may be added that the change of figure is not instantaneous, but becomes greater after some continuance of the strain than it was at first, so that engaging a cylinder to ascertain the difference of diameter when it is placed on its side, it should have lain some days upon its side to ensure the accuracy of the operation. Question 710. How is any flaw in the valve or cylinder face remedied? Answer. Should a hole occur either in the valve, in the cylinder, or any other part where the surface requires to be smooth, it may be plugged up with a piece of cast iron, as nearly as possible of the same texture. Bore out the faulty part, and afterwards widen the hole with an eccentric drill, so that it will be of the least diameter at the mouth. The hole may go more than half through the iron. Fit then a plug of cast iron roughly by filing, and hammer it into the hole, whereby the plug will become riveted in it, and its surface may then be filed smooth. Square pieces may be let in after the same fashion, the hole being made dovetailed, and the pieces thus fitted will never come out. Question 711 when cylinders are faced with brass, how is the face attached to the cylinder? Answer. Brass faces are put upon valves or cylinders by means of small brass screws tapped into the iron, with conical necks for the retention of the brass. They are screwed by means of a square head, which, when the screw is in place, is cut off and filed smooth. In some cases the face is made of extra thickness, and a rim not so thick runs round it, forming a step or recess for the reception of brass rivets, the heads of which are clear of the face. Question 712. What is the best material for valve faces? Answer. Much trouble is experienced with every modification of valve face, but cast iron working upon cast iron is perhaps the best combination yet introduced. A usual practice is to pin brass faces on the cylinder, allowing the valve to retain its cast iron face. Some makers employ brass valves, and others pin brass on the valves, leaving the cylinder with a cast iron face. If brass valves are used, it is advisable to plane out two grooves across the face, and to fill them up with hard cast iron to prevent rutting. Speculum metal and steel have been tried for the cylinder faces, but only with moderate success. In some cases the brass gets into ruts, but the most prevalent affection is a degradation of the iron, owing to the action of the steam, and the face assuming a granular appearance, something like loaf sugar. This action shows itself only at particular spots, and chiefly about the angles of the port or valve face. At first the action is slow, but when once the steam has worked a passage for itself, the cutting away becomes very rapid, and in a short time it will be impossible to prevent the engine from heating when stopped, owing to the leakage of steam through the valve into the condenser. 
copper steam pipes seem to have some galvanic action on valve faces and malleable iron pipes have sometimes been substituted but they are speedily worn out by oxidation and the scales of rust which are carried on by the steam scratch the valves and cylinders so that the use of copper pipes is the least evil question seven hundred and thirteen will you explain in what manner the joints of an engine are made answer rust joints are not now much used in engines of any kind yet it is necessary that the engineer should be acquainted with the manner of their formation one ounce of sal ammoniac in powder is mingled with eighteen ounces or a pound of borings of cast iron and a sufficiency of water is added to wet the mixture thoroughly which should be done some hours before it is wanted for use some persons add about half an ounce of flowers of brimstone to the above proportions and a little sludge from the grindstone trough this cement is corked into the joints with a corking iron about three quarters of an inch wide and one quarter of an inch thick and after the corking is finished the bolts of the joints may be tried to see if they cannot be further tightened the skin of the iron must in all cases be broken where a rust joint is to be made and if the place be greasy the surface must be well rubbed over with nitric acid and then washed with water till no grease remains the oil about engines has a tendency to damage rust joints by recovering the oxide coppersmiths staunch the edges of their plates and rivets by means of a cement formed of powdered quicklime with serum of blood or white of egg and in copper boilers such a substance may be useful in stopping the impalpable leaks which sometimes occur though roman cement appears to be nearly as effectual question seven hundred and fourteen will you explain the method of case hardening the parts of engines answer the most common plan for case hardening consists in the insertion of the articles to be operated upon among horn or leather cuttings bone dust or animal charcoal in an iron box provided with a tight lid which is then put into a furnace for a period answerable to the depth of steel required in some cases the plan pursued by the gunsmiths may be employed with convenience the article is inserted in a sheet-iron case amid bone dust often not burnt the lid of the box is tied on with wire and the joint looted with clay the box is heated to redness as quickly as possible and kept half an hour at a uniform heat its contents are then suddenly immersed in cold water the more unwieldy portions of an engine may be case hardened by prussiate of potash a salt made from animal substances composed of two atoms of carbon and one of nitrogen and which operates on the same principle as the charcoal the iron is heated in the fire to a dull red heat and the salt is either sprinkled upon it or rubbed on in the lump or the iron is rubbed in the salt in powder the iron is then returned to the fire for a few minutes and finally immersed in water by some persons the salt is supposed to act unequally as if there were greasy spots upon the iron which the salt refused to touch and the effect under any circumstances is exceedingly superficial nevertheless upon all parts not exposed to wear a sufficient coating of steel may be obtained by this process question seven hundred and fifteen 
what kind of iron is most suitable for the working parts of an engine? Answer. In the malleable iron work of engines, scrap iron has long been used and considered preferable to other kinds. But if the parts are to be case-hardened, as is now the usual practice, the use of scrap iron is to be reprehended, as it is almost sure to make the parts twist in the case-hardening process. In case-hardening, iron absorbs carbon, which causes it to swell, and as some kinds of iron have a greater capacity for carbon than other kinds, in case-hardening they will swell more, and any such unequal enlargement in the constituent portions of a piece of iron will cause it to change its figure. In some cases, case-hardening has caused such a twisting of the parts of an engine that they could not afterward be fitted together. It is preferable, therefore, to make such parts as are to be case-hardened to any considerable depth of Lomor, Bowling or Indian iron, which being homogeneous, will absorb carbon equally and will not twist. Question 716. What is the composition of the brass used for engine bearings? Answer. The brass bearings of an engine are composed principally of copper and tin. A very good brass for steam engine bearings consists of old copper, 112 pounds, tin, 12.5 pounds, zinc, 2 or 3 ounces. And if the new tile copper be used, there should be 13 pounds of tin instead of 12.5 pounds. A tough brass for engine work consists of 1.5 pounds of tin, 1.5 pounds of zinc, and 10 pounds of copper. A brass for heavy bearings, two and a half ounces of tin, half an ounce of zinc, and one pound of copper. There is a great difference in the length of time brasses wear, as made by different manufacturers, but the difference arises as much from a different quantity of surface as from a varying composition of the metal. Brasses should always be made strong and thick, as when thin they collapse upon the bearing and increase the friction and the wear. Question 717. How is Babbitt's metal for lining the bushes of machinery compounded? Answer. Babbitt's patent lining metal for bushes has been largely employed in the bushes of locomotive axles and other machinery. It is composed of one pound of copper, one pound regulus of antimony, and ten pounds of tin, or other similar proportions, the presence of tin being the only material condition. The copper is first melted, then the antimony is added, with a small proportion of tin, charcoal being strewed over the surface of the metal in the crucible to prevent oxidation. The bush or article to be lined, having been cast with a recess for the soft metal, is to be fitted to an iron mould, formed of the shape and size of the bearing or journal, allowing a little in size for the shrinkage. Drill a hole for the reception of the soft metal, say one half to three quarter inch diameter. Wash the parts not to be tinned with a clay wash to prevent the adhesion of the tin. Wet the part to be tinned with alcohol and sprinkle fine sal ammoniac upon it. Heat the article until fumes arise from the ammonia and immerse it in a kettle of banker tin, care being taken to prevent oxidation. When sufficiently tinned, the bush should be soaked in water 
to take off any particles of ammonia that may remain upon it, as the ammonia would cause the metal to blow. Wash with pipe clay and dry. Then heat the bush to the melting point of tin, wipe it clean, and pour in the metal, giving it sufficient head as it cools. The bush should then be scoured with fine sand to take off any dirt that may remain upon it, and it is then fit for use. This metal wears for a longer time than ordinary gun metal, and its use is attended with very little friction. If the bearing heats, however, from the stopping of the oil hole or otherwise, the metal will be melted out. A metallic grease containing particles of tin in the state of an impalpable powder would probably be preferable to the lining of metal just described. Question 718. Can you state the composition of any other alloys that are used in engine work? Answer. The ordinary range of good yellow brass that files and turns well is about four and a half to nine ounces of zinc to the pound of copper. Flanges to stand brazing may be made of copper one pound, zinc half an ounce, lead three-eighths of an ounce. Brazing solders, when stated in the order of their hardness, are three parts copper and one part zinc, very hard. 8 parts brass and 1 part zinc, hard, 6 parts brass, 1 part tin and 1 part zinc, soft. A very common solder for iron, copper and brass consists of nearly equal parts of copper and zinc. Munzer's metal consists of 40 parts zinc and 60 of copper. Any proportions between the extremes of 50 parts of zinc and 50 parts copper and 37 zinc and 63 copper will roll and work at a red heat, but 40 zinc to 60 copper are the proportions preferred. Bell metal, such as is used for large bells, consists of 4.5 ounces to 5 ounces of tin to the pound of copper. Speculum metal consists of from 7.5 ounces to 8.5 ounces of tin to the pound of copper. Erection of engines. Question 719. Will you explain the operation of erecting a pair of side lever engines in the workshop? Answer. In beginning the erection of side lever marine engines in the workshop, the first step is to level the bed plate lengthways and across and strike a line up the centre as near as possible in the middle, which indent with a chisel in various parts, so that it may at any time be easily found again. Strike another line at right angles with this, either at the cylinder or crank centre, by drawing a perpendicular in the usual manner. Lay the other saw plate alongside at the right distance, and strike a line at the cylinder or crank centre of it also, shifting either saw plate a little endways, until these two traverse lines come into the same line, which may be ascertained by applying a straight edge across the two sole plates. Strike the rest of the centres across, and draw a pin into each corner of each sole plate, which file down level so as to serve for points of reference at any future stage. Next, try the cylinder, or plumb it on the inside roughly, and see how it is for height in order to ascertain whether much will be required to be chipped off the bottom, or whether more requires to be chipped off the one side than the other. Chip the cylinder bottom fair, set it in its place, 
plumb the cylinder very carefully with a straight edge and silk thread, and scribe it so as to bring the cylinder mouth to the right height, then chip the sole plate to suit that height. The cylinder must then be tried on again, and the parts filed wherever they bear hard, until the whole surface is well fitted. Next chip the place for the framing, set up the framing and scribe the horizontal part of the jaw with the scriber used for the bottom of the cylinder, the upright part being set to suit the shaft centres and the angular flange of cylinder where the stay is attached having been previously chipped plumb and level. The stake wedges with which the framing is set up preparatory to the operation of scribing must be set so as to support equally the superincumbent height else the framing will spring from resting unequally and it will be altogether impossible to fit it well. These directions obviously refer exclusively to the old description of side lever engine with cast iron framing but there is more art in erecting an engine of that kind with accuracy than in erecting one of the direct action engines where it is chiefly turned or board surfaces that have to be dealt with. Question 720 how do you lay out the positions of the centres of a side lever engine? Answer. In fixing the positions of the centres in side lever engines, it appears to be the most convenient way to begin with the main centre. The height of the centre of the crosshead at half stroke above the plane of the main centre is fixed by the drawing of the engine, which gives the centre from the centre of crosshead at half stroke to the flange of the cylinder and from thence it is easy to find the perpendicular distance from the cylinder flange to the plane of the main centre, merely by putting a straight edge along level from the position of the main centre to the cylinder and measuring from the cylinder flange down to it, raising or lowering the straight edge until it rests at the proper measurement. The main centre is in that plane, and the fore-and-aft position is to be found by plumbing up from the centre line on the sole plate. To find the paddle shaft centre, plumb up from the centre line marked on the edge of the sole plate, and on this line lay off from the plane of the main centre the length of the connecting rod, if that length be already fixed, or otherwise the height fixed in the drawing of the paddle shaft above the main centre. To fix the centre for the parallel motion shaft, when the parallel bars are connected with the crosshead, lay off from the plane of main centre the length of the parallel bar from the centre of the cylinder, deduct the length of the radius crank, and plumb up the central line of motion shaft. Lay off on this line, measuring from the plane of main centre the length of the side rod. This gives the centre of parallel motion shaft when the radius bars join the crosshead, as is the preferable practice where parallel motions are used. The length of the connecting rod is the distance from the centre of the beam when level, or the plane of the main centre to the centre of the paddle shaft. The length of the side rods is the distance from the centre line of the beam when level to the centre of the crosshead when the piston is at half stroke. The length of the radius rods of the parallel motion is the distance from the point of attachment on the crosshead or side rod when the piston is at half stroke to the extremity of the radius crank when the crank is horizontal or in engines with the parallel motion attached to the crosshead, it is the distance from the centre of the pin of the radius crank when horizontal to the centre of the cylinder. 
having fixed the centre of the parallel motion shaft in the manner just described it only remains to put the parts together when the motion is attached to the crosshead but when the motion is attached to the side rod the end of the parallel bar must not move in a perpendicular line but in an arc the versed sign of which bears the same ratio to that of the side lever that the distance from the top of the side rod to the point of attachment bears to the total length of the side rod question seven hundred and twenty one how do you ascertain the accuracy of the parallel motion answer the parallel motion when put in its place should be tested by raising and lowering the piston by means of the crane first set the beams level and shift in or out the motion shaft plumber blocks or bearings until the piston rod is upright then move the piston to the two extremes of its motion if at both ends the crosshead is thrown too much out the stud in the beam to which the motion side rod is attached is too far out and must be shifted nearer to the main centre if at the extremities the crosshead is thrown too far in the stud in the beam is not out far enough if the crosshead be thrown in at the one end and out equally at the other the fault is in the motion side rod which must be lengthened or shortened to remedy the defect question seven hundred and twenty two will you describe the method pursued in erecting oscillating engines answer the columns here are of wrought iron and in the case of small engines there is a template made of wood and sheet iron in which the holes are set in the proper positions by which the upper and lower frames are adjusted but in the case of large engines the holes are set off by means of trammels the holes for the reception of the columns are cast in the frames and are recessed out internally the bosses encircling the holes are made quite level across and made very true with a face plate and the pillars which have been turned to a gauge are then inserted the top frame is next put on and must bear upon the collars of the columns so evenly that one of the columns will not be bound by it harder than another if this point be not attained the surfaces must be further scraped until a perfect fit is established the whole of the bearings in the best oscillating engines are fitted by means of scraping and on no other mode of fitting can the same reliance be placed for exactitude question seven hundred and twenty three how do you set out the trunnions of oscillating engines so that they shall be at right angles with the interior of the cylinder answer having bored the cylinder faced the flange and bored out the hole through which the boring bar passes put a piece of wood across the mouth of the cylinder and jam it in and put a similar piece in the hole through the bottom of the cylinder mark the centre of the cylinder upon each of these pieces and put into the bore of each trunnion an iron plate with a small indentation in the middle to receive the centre of a lathe and adjusting screws to bring the centre into any required position the cylinder must then be set in a lathe and hung by the centre of the trunnions and a straight edge must be put across the cylinder mouth and levelled so as to pass through the line in which the centre of the cylinder lies another similar straight edge and similarly levelled must be similarly placed across the cylinder bottom so as to pass through the central line of the cylinder 
and the cylinder is then to be turned round in the trunnion centres, the straight edges remaining stationary, which will at once show whether the trunnions are in the same horizontal plane as the centre of the cylinder, and if not, the screws of the plates in the trunnions must be adjusted until the central point of the cylinder just comes to the straight edge, whichever end of the cylinder is presented. To ascertain whether the trunnions stand in a transverse plane, parallel to the cylinder flange, it is only necessary to measure down from the flange to each trunnion centre. And if both these conditions are satisfied, the position of the centres may be supposed to be right. The trunnion bearings are then turned and are fitted into blocks of wood, in which they run while the packing space is being turned out. Where many oscillating engines are made, a lathe with four centres is used, which makes the use of straight edges in setting out the trunnions superfluous. Question 724. Will you explain how the slide valve of a marine engine is set? Place the crank in the position corresponding to the end of the stroke, which can easily be done in the shop with a level or plumb line but in a steam vessel another method becomes necessary. Draw the transverse centre line, answering to the centre line of the crankshaft, on the sole plate of the engine, or on the cylinder mouth if the engine be of the direct action kind. Describe a circle of the diameter of the crank pin upon the large eye of the crank, and mark off on either side of the transverse centre line a distance equal to the semi-diameter of the crank pin. From the point thus found, stretch a line to the edge of the circle described on the large eye of the crank, and bring round the crankshaft till the crank pin touches the stretched line. The crank may thus be set at either end of the stroke. When the crank is thus placed at the end of the stroke, the valve must be adjusted so as to have the amount of lead or opening on the steam side which it is intended to give at the beginning of the stroke. The eccentric must then be turned round upon the shaft until the notch in the eccentric rod comes opposite the pin on the valve lever and falls into gear. Mark upon the shaft the situation of the eccentric and put on the catches in the usual way. The same process must be repeated for going astern, shifting round the eccentric to the opposite side of the shaft until the rod again falls into gear. In setting valves, Regard must, of course, be had to the kind of engine, the arrangements of the levers, and the kind of valve employed. And in any general instructions it is impossible to specify every modification in the procedure that circumstances may render advisable. Question 725. Is a similar method of setting the valve adopted when the link motion is employed? Answer. Each end of the link of the link motion has the kind of motion communicated to it that is due to the action of the particular eccentric with which that end is in connection. In that form of the link motion in which the link itself is moved up or down, there is a different amount of lead for each different position of the link, since to raise or lower the link is tantamount to turning the eccentric round on the shaft. In that form of the link motion, in which the link itself is not raised or lowered, but is susceptible of the motion round a centre in the manner of a double-ended lever, the lead continues uniform. 
in both forms of the link motion as the stroke of the valve may be varied to any required amount while the lap is a constant quantity the proportion of lap relatively to the stroke of the valve may also be varied to any required extent and the amount of the lap relatively with the stroke of the valve determines the amount of the expansion in setting the valve when fitted with the link motion the mode of procedure is much the same as when it is moved by a simple eccentric the first thing is to determine if the eccentric rods are of the proper length and this is done by setting the valve at each half stroke and turning round the eccentric marking each extremity of the travel of the end of the rod the valve attachment should be midway between these extremes and if it is not so it must be made so by lengthening or shortening the rod the forward and backward eccentric rods are to be adjusted in this way and this being done the engine is to be put to the end of the stroke and the eccentric is to be turned round until the amount of lead has been given that is required the valve must be tried by turning the engine round to see that it is right at both centres for going ahead and also for going astern in some examples of the link motion one of the eccentric rods is made a little longer than the other and the position of the point of suspension or point of support powerfully influences the action of the link in certain cases especially if the link and this point are not in the same vertical line to reconcile all the conditions proper to the satisfactory operation of the valve in the construction of the link motion is a problem requiring a good deal of attention and care for its satisfactory solution and to make sure that this result is attained the engine must be turned round a sufficient number of times to enable us to ascertain that the valve occupies the desired position both at the top and bottom centres whether the engine is going ahead or astern this should also be tried with the starting handle in the different notches or in other words with the sliding block in the slot or opening of the link in different positions management of marine boilers question seven hundred and twenty six you have already stated that the formation of salt or scale in marine boilers is to be prevented by blowing out into the sea at frequent intervals a portion of the concentrated water will you now explain how the proper quantity of water to be blown is determined answer by means of the salinometer which is an instrument for determining the density of the water constructed on the principle of the hydrometer for telling the strength of spirits some of the water is drawn off from the boiler from time to time and the salinometer is immersed in it after it has been cooled by the graduations of the salinometer the saltness of this water is at once discovered and if the saltness exceeds eight ounces of salt in the gallon more water should be blown out of the boiler to be replenished with fresher water from the sea until the prescribed limit of freshness is attained should the salinometer be accidentally broken a temporary one may be constructed of a file weighted with a few grains of shot or other convenient weight the weighted file is first to be floated in fresh water and its line of flotation marked then to be floated in salt water and its line of flotation marked and another mark of equal height above the salt water mark will be the blow-off point question seven hundred and twenty seven 
how often should boilers be blown off in order to keep them free from incrustation? Answer. Flue boilers generally require to be blown off about twice every watch, or about twice in the four hours. But tubular boilers may require to be blown off once every 20 minutes, and such an amount of blowing off should in every case be adopted, as will effectually prevent any injurious amount of incrustation. Question 728. In the event of scale accumulating on the flues of a boiler, what is the best way of removing it? Answer. If the boilers require to be scaled, the best method of performing the operation appears to be the following. Lay a train of shavings along the flues, open the safety valve to prevent the existence of any pressure within the boiler, and light the train of shavings, which by expanding rapidly the metal of the flues, while the scale, from its imperfect conducting power, can only expand slowly, will crack off the scale. By washing down the flues with a hose, the scale will be carried to the bottom of the boiler, or issue, with the water, from the mudhole doors. This method of scaling must be practised only by the engineer himself, and must not be entrusted to the firemen, who, in their ignorance, might damage the boiler by overheating the plates. It is only where the incrustation upon the flues is considerable that this method of removing it need be practised. In partial cases, the scale may be chipped off by a hatchet-faced hammer, and the flues may then be washed down with the hose in the manner before described. Question 729. Should the steam be let out of the boiler after it has blown out the water when the engine is stopped? Answer. No. It is better to retain the steam in the boiler as the heat and moisture it occasions soften any scale adhering to the boiler and cause it to peel off. Care must, however, be taken not to form a vacuum in the boiler, and the gauge cocks, if opened, will prevent this. Question 730. Are tubular boilers liable to the formation of scale in certain places, though generally free from it? Answer. In tubular boilers, a great deal of care is required to prevent the ends of the tubes next the furnace from becoming coated with scale. Even when the boiler is tolerably clean in other places, the scale will collect here, and in many cases where the amount of blowing off previously found to suffice for flue boilers has been adopted, an incrustation five-eighths of an inch in thickness has formed in twelve months round the furnace ends of the tubes, and the stony husks enveloping them have actually grown together in some parts so as totally to exclude the water. End of chapter 12 of A Catechism of the Steam Engine by John Bourne Recording by Son of the Exiles Cat Show Department From the Catalog Program for the Connecticut 1909 Fair by the Connecticut Fair Association, Hartford This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Cat Show Department from the Catalog Program for the Connecticut 1909 Fair. Cat Show Department. 
Mrs. Frederick Y. Mathis, Superintendent. Veterinarian, Dr. Edward C. Ross. Officers of the Connecticut Cat Club. President, Mrs. Helen W. Smith, Stamford, Connecticut. Vice Presidents, Mrs. Emily B. Fay, Stamford, Connecticut. Mrs. J. C. Mitchelson, Terrafield, Connecticut. Mrs. L. M. French, Norton Heights, Connecticut. Mrs. Arthur McMullen, Stamford, Connecticut. Corresponding Secretary and Treasurer, Mrs. Frederick Y. Mathis, Norton Heights, Connecticut. Executive Committee, Mrs. John Walker, Sound Beach, Connecticut. Mrs. Charles E. Palmer, Sound Beach, Connecticut. Mrs. Frederick C. Birch, Riverside, Connecticut. Mr. Frank L. Palmer, Sound Beach, Connecticut. Mrs. Samuel Rundell, Danbury, Connecticut. Judge, Dr. Henry O. Walters, New York. Show Manager, Mrs. Frederick Y. Mathis, Norton Heights, Connecticut. Judging of cats will begin at 10 a.m. Tuesday, September 7th. Class 1. White cat, male, blue eyes. 1. Kiravak Chorister, CFA 129. Born March 1905. Oberon Rena. Breeder, Mrs. B. Brown. Owner, Miss J.R. Crow. Class 2. White cat, female, blue eyes. 2. White agrete, CFA 94. Born May 1906. Oberon Carrara. Breeder, owner, Miss Laura Gould Hopkins. 3. Chorus girl, CFA 438. Born May 1908. Oberon Kenna, breeder, Mrs. B. Brown, owner, Miss M. Johnson, also in class 38. Class 3, white cat, male, yellow eyes. 4, FAMO, CFA 291, owner, Miss M. Johnson. Class 4, white cat, female, yellow eyes. 5, Babs, born January 1905, Ned Queen May, breeder Mrs. F. Y. Mathis, owner Mrs. Fred Austin. Class 5, Blue Cat, male, 6, Shiraz, CFA 659, born May 1907, Bonnie Marcella Colina, breeder Mrs. Humphrey, Owner, Mrs. R.P. McCoon. Class 7, Black Cat, Male. 7, Prince Egypt, Born, May 1906. Ping Pong, Queen May. Breeder, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis. Owner, Mrs. Helen W. Smith. 8, Chippewa, C.F.A. 384. Born November 1907, Cigarette Waverly Celeste, Breeder, Owner, Mrs. P.T. Barnett. Class 8, Black Cat, Female. 9, Patrice, CFA 356, Born May 1907, 
Columbia Patrick Coquette, Breeder, Miss E. L. Burnett, Owner, Mrs. R. P. McCoon. Class 9. Smoke Cat, Male. 10. Sparkle Murray, CFA 385, born November 1907, cigarette Waverly Celeste, breeder Mrs. P. T. Barnett, owner Mrs. L. H. Travis. 11. Ping Pong, CFA 445, born 1904, Black Knight, Princess of India, breeder Mrs. F. I. Palmer, owner Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. 12. Tad, born blank. Beauty, Jean Rupert. Owner, Miss Voorhees. Class 10. Smoke Cat, female. Queen May, born May 1905. Black Knight, Princess of India. Breeder, Mrs. F. I. Palmer. Owner, Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. Price, $25. 14. Derossi, born August 1907, Abdul Moko, Lady Kelenor, breeder Mrs. Jenkins, owner Dr. C. C. Dutcherer. 15. Waverly Celeste, CFA 257, born March 1906, Radium Waverly Pansy, breeder Mrs. J. C. Urquhart, owner Mrs. P. T. Barnett. Class 11. Chinchilla Cat, male. 16. Misty, CFA 513. Born May 1908. Alteric Honey. Breeder, Mrs. K. Briggs. Owner, Miss C. I. Waterbury. Also in class 47. 17. Monterico, CFA blank. Born April 1907. Omar II. Judy A. Breeder, Dr. Beebe. Owner, Mrs. H. W. Furness. Class 12, Chinchilla Cat, Female. 18, Daisy Bell, Imported, Miss Mary Middleton. 19, Sweet Marie, CFA, 12, Born, 1903. Batern Silver Chieftain, Batern Silver Bell. Breeder, Mrs. J. Conslick. Owner, Mrs. Wood. Class 13, Shaded Silver Cat, male. 20. St. Valentine II, born March 1907. St. Valentine Silver Bell, breeder Mrs. L. Salter, owner Mrs. John Walker, also in class 49. 21. Silver Captain, Shah in Shah, Butibe, breeder Mrs. Bosch, owner Mrs. J. Cathcart, also in class 49. 22. Otto Boy, born April 1902, Otto Silver Spray, breeder Mrs. Palmer, owner Mrs. D.B. Wiswell. Class 14, Shaded Silver, Female. 23, Valeria, born March 1908, St. Valentine, Princess Elaine, breeder Mrs. J. L. Byrne, owner Mrs. G. S. Tuttle. 24, Malba, CFA 422, born March 1908, Scotland Get, Daphner Daughter, Breeder, Mrs. Pollard, Owner, Mrs. L. H. Travis, Class 17, 
Silver Tabby Cat, male. 25. Kirovac, Earl of Arlisle, CFA, 390. Born April 1906. Beauty of Sunnyholm, Kilovark, Moravia. Breeder, owner, Mrs. J.R. Crow. Class 18. Silver Tabby Cat, female. 26. Fluffy of Althea, born March 1906. Selah. Argent Floss, Breeder, Mrs. K. Briggs, Owner, Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. 27. Helen McGregor, Born April 1908. Jupiter, Bonnie Jean, Breeder, Miss Meeson, Owner, Miss Mary Middleton. 28. Quita, Born March 1906. Selah, Argent Floss, Breeder, Mrs. K. Briggs, Owner, Mrs. C. I. Waterbury. Class 20, Brown Tabby, female. 29, Betty, born 1906. Domino, Fluffy Sunshine, price $100. Owner, Fanny E. White. Class 22, Orange Tabby Cat, female. 30, Patty Faw, CFA, blank. Born 1908, Torrington Faw, Comfort of Hill Acre. Breeder, Mrs. F. Birch owner, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis, also in Class 58. Class 23, Orange Tabby, male. 31, Red Admiral, born 1905, Torrington Rufus, Cinder, breeder M. Mixton, owner, Mrs. D.B. Wiswell. Class 25, Cream Cat, male. 32, Petite K, CFA 38, born 1904, Prince Muffy, breeder, owner, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis. Class 26, Tortoiseshell Cat. 33, Willowmere Minette, born 1903. King Willow, Muffet, breeder, Miss Anna Marks. Owner, Miss F.Y. Mathis. Price $25. 34, Pansy Blossom, born April 1908. Cute Kid, Bess Reglo. Breeder, owner, Mrs. S.D. Grant. Price, $25. Class 27. Black and white or blue and white, male or female. 35. Queenie, owner, Mrs. J.K. McKenzie. 36. Fudge, born 1909. Breeder, Mrs. Whittam. Owner, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis. 37. Fluffy Ruffles, born 1908. Owner, L.W. Bowden. Class 30. A.O.C. without white, female. 38. Hepatica, C.F.A. 510. Born July 1908. Shah-in-Shah, Bougie. Breeder, Mrs. O.L. Dosh. Owner, Mrs. H.V. Furness. Class 32. A.O.C. female. 39. Q. Biddy. Born 1906, Q. Ronald, Cream Door. Breeder, Mrs. Norris. Owner, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis. 40, Orange Puff. Born August 1908, Golden Barrel, Red Dragon's Princess. Breeder, Mrs. Lucy Salter. Owner, Mrs. John Walker. Class 33, Solid Color, Neuters. 41, Nick. Born 1908, Cute Kid, Bess Reglo. 
Breeder, Owner, Mrs. S. D. Grant. Price, $25. 42. Anthos of Thorpe. Born September 1908. Orange Blossom of Thorpe, Olten Flower Girl. Breeder, Mrs. Douglas of England. Owner, Mrs. E. L. Brace. Class 34. Neuters, Smokes, or Silvers. 43. Velvet Paws. Born 1907. Ping Pong, Fudge. Breeder, Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. Owner, Mrs. Sisko Smith. 44. Mozart. Born 1908. Ping Pong, Quita. Breeder, Mrs. C. I. Waterbury. Owner, Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 35. Any Color Tabby, Neuter. 45. Captain Tawny, born October 1907, Torrington, Faw, Bula, breeder Mrs. G. Yates, Jr., owner Mrs. Reginald. 46. Belzebub, born April 1908, Bobby Burns, Helen McGregor, breeder, owner Miss Mary Middleton. Class 36, AOC with white, neuter. 46. Bobby Fluffles, born 1905. Owner, Miss Charlotte T. Isham. Long-haired novice. Class 37. White cat, male, blue eyes. 48. Kilbarock Don Giovanni. Born July 1908. Susa, Kilbarock Magnolia II. Price $100. Class 38. White, blue-eyed female. 49. Chorus Girl, CFA 438. Born May 1908, Oberon, Kenna, breeder Mrs. B. Brown, owner Miss M. Johnson. Class 41, Blue Cat, male, 50, Blue Boy, born 1908, Ping Pong, Quita, breeder Miss C. I. Waterbury, owner Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 43, Black Cat, male, 51, Uchidi, Born 1908, Ping Pong, Quita, Breeder Owner, Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 45, Smoke Cat, Male. 52, Smoky Faust, Born 1908, Ping Pong, Quita, Breeder Owner, Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 47, Chinchilla Cat, Male. 53, Misty, CFA 513. Born May 1908, Alteric Honey, Breeder Mrs. K. Briggs, Owner Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 48, Chinchilla Cat, Female. 54, Daisy Bell, Imported, Owner Miss Mary Middleton. Class 49, Shaded Silver Cat, Male. 55, St. Valentine II, Born March 1908, St. Valentine, Silver Bell. Breeder, Miss L. Salter, owner, Mrs. John Walker. 56. Silver Cap, Shaw and Shaw, Boutibe. Breeder, Mrs. O. L. Dosh, owner, Miss Cathcart. 57. Silver King, born 1908, Ping Pong, Quita. Breeder, owner, Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 50. Shaded Silver, female. 58. Beechwood Kilkey. Born July 1908, Shaw and Shaw, Bougie, Breeder, Mrs. O. L. Dosh, 
owner, Mrs. R. W. Kenny. 59. M. J. Born February 1906. Demoracy, Smoke. Breeder, Miss L. G. Hopkins. Owner, Miss M. Johnson. 60. Jolie. Born 1908. Ping Pong, Quita. Breeder, Owner, Miss C. I. Waterbury. Class 53. Silver Tabby, Male. 61. Captain. Born 1908. Scotland Yet, Daphne's Daughter. Breeder, Miss Pollard. Owner, Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. Class 54, Silver Tabby, female. 62, Coco Coho, born April 1908. Bobby Burns, Helen McGregor. Breeder, owner, Miss Mary Middleton. Class 58, Orange Tabby Cat, female. 63, Patty Faw, born 1908. Torrington Faw, Comfort of Hillacre. Breeder, Miss F. Birch, owner, Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. Long-Haired Kittens. Class 64, White Blue Eyes. 64. Puritan, CFA 631, born 1909. Sir Friar, White, Egret. Breeder, owner, Miss Laura Gould Hopkins. 65. Guy Hussar, CFA blank, born 1909. Sir Friar White Agret, breeder owner, Miss Laura Gould Hopkins. 66. Kitten H., born 1909. Sir Friar White Agret, breeder owner, Miss L.G. Hopkins. Class 64A, White, Yellow Eyes. 67. Winky, born May 1909. Susa Glory, breeder owner, Helen Gregory. Price fifty dollars. Sixty-eight Blinky, born May nineteen o nine. Souza Glory, breeder owner Helen Gregory. Price fifty dollars. Sixty-nine Nod, born nineteen o nine. Souza Glory, breeder owner Helen Gregory. Price fifty dollars. Class sixty-five Black, seventy Cricket, born July nineteen o nine. Cricket, Cooney. Breeder, owner, Mrs. T. M. Ryder. Price, $10. 71. Buster, born 1909. Cricket, Cooney. Breeder, owner, Mrs. T. M. Ryder. Price, $10. 72. Tinkle Bell, born 1909. Tangerine, Pansy Blossom. Breeder, owner, Mrs. S. D. Grant. Price, $15. 73. Bo Peep, born 1908, Captain Quita, breeder, owner, Mrs. C. I. Waterbury, for sale. Class 66, Blue. 74, Blue Splendor, CFA 673, born April 1909, Shiraz, Regal, Andromeda, breeder, owner, Mrs. R. P. McCoon. 75, Scotty, Born March 1909, Captain Fluff, breeder Mrs. F. Y. Mathis, owner Mrs. L. M. French. 76. Kilravac, Sir Bors, born April 1909, Kilravac Beppo, Kilravac Mora, breeder owner Mrs. J. R. Crow. 77. Waverly Delight Dunbar, 
born May 1909. Honorable John Dunbar, Genesee Valley Bonbon. Breeder, Mrs. J.C. Urquhart. Owners, Mrs. J.C. Urquhart and Miss E.L. Brace. Class 67, Smoke or Masked Silvers. 78, Ahmet, born May 1909. Shiraz Minnet. Breeder owner, Mrs. H. V. Furness, for sale. Class 68, Chinchilla. 79, Duke of Helen, born April 1908, Captain Fluff. Breeder, Mrs. F. Y. Mathis, owner, W. J. Snyder. 80, Prince Alex, born May 1909. Alteric Valeria, breeder, owner, Mrs. G. S. Tuttle. 81, Lady Evelyn, born May 1909, Altaric Valeria, breeder, owner, Mrs. G. S. Tuttle, price $30. 82, Little Miss Butterfly, born May 1909, Altaric Valeria, breeder, owner, Mrs. G. S. Tuttle, price $30. Class 69, Silvers. 83, Silver Laddie, Born April 1909, Captain Quita, breeder, owner, Mrs. C.P. Waterbury, price $20. 84, Martin Chuzzlewit, born March 1909, Demoracy, Betty Frost, breeder, owner, Mrs. E.A. Street, price $35. 85, Mark Tapley, born March 1909, Demoracy, Betty Frost, Breeder, owner, Mrs. E.A. Street, price $25. 86, Dorothy Dainty, born March 1909. Demoracy, Betty Frost. Breeder, owner, Mrs. E.A. Street, price $25. Class 69A, Silver Tabbies. 87, Darius, born March 1909. Democracy, Betty Frost. Breeder, owner, Mrs. E. A. Street, price $25. 88. Minaru, born May 1909. King Winter, Lady June. Breeder, owner, Mrs. H. V. Furness and Mr. R. Scully. 89. Antka, born May 1909. King Winter, Lady June. Breeder, owner, Mrs. H. V. Furness and Mr. R. Scully. 90. Kubla Khan, born March 1909. Sparkle, Melba. Breeder, Mrs. L. H. Travis. Owner, Mrs. Reginald. Class 70. Brown Tabby. 91. Diana, born April 1909. Captain, Quita. Breeder, owner, Mrs. C. P. Waterbury. Price $25. Class 71. Orange Tabby, male. 92. King Topaz, born April 1909. Copper King, Bula. Owner, Mrs. C.W. Pratt. 93. Robin, born March 19, 1909. Sad Ladine, Lady Benda. Owner, Mrs. E.A. Street. 94. Billy, born March 19, 1909. Sad Ladine, Lady Benda. Owner, Mrs. E.A. Street. 95. Red Lion, born April 19, 1909. Torrington Fall, Beulah, 
breeder owner Mrs. E. A. Street. 96. Torty Faw, born April 19, 1909. Torrington Faw, Beulah. Owner, Mrs. George Yates. Class 71A, Orange Tabby, female. 97. Lady Topaz, born April 19, 1909. Copper King, Beulah. Owner and breeder, Mrs. C.W. Pratt. 98. Amber, born April 19, 1909. Copper King, Beulah, owner, Mrs. C.W. Pratt. 99. Copper Faw, born April 19, 1909. Copper King, Beulah, owner, Mrs. C.W. Pratt. 100. Lady Q, born February 1909. Lord Q. Tangerine, Lady Torrington. Breeder, owner, Mrs. John R. Hurd. 101. Bonnie Bell. Born April 19, 1909. Lord Q. Tangerine, Lady Benda. Owner, breeder, Mrs. E. A. Street. Class 72, Tortoiseshell or Cream. 102, Lady Sienna, born May 1909. Cyrus the Great, Persnickety. Breeder, owner, Mrs. H. V. Furness. For sale. 103, Lady Cadmium. Born May 1909. Cyrus the Great, Persnickety, Breeder Owner, Mrs. H. V. Furness, for sale. Class 73, Any Other Color. 104, Cooney, born July 1909, Cricket Cooney, Owner, Mrs. T. M. Ryder, price $10. 105, Bosco, born June 1909, Bosco Fuzzy, Breeder Mrs. T. M. Ryder, Price fifteen dollars. One hundred and six. Lady, born July nineteen oh nine. Cricket Cooney, breeder and owner Mrs. T. M. Ryder. Price ten dollars. Short-haired cats, class seventy four. White, blue-eyed. One oh seven. Combo C. F. A. Jumbo Pearl, breeder Mrs. F. Y. Mathis. Owner Miss J. R. Cathcart. Class seventy seven. Blue, female. 108. Cricket, born 1908. Owner, Mrs. George Stark. 109. Bluebell, born 1908. Silver Boy, Marvel. Breeder and owner, Mrs. George Yates, for sale. Class 107. Black, female. 110. Lucy Black, born April 1908. Tom Black, Blue Girl. Owner, Mr. Black. Class 81, Smoked, Female. 111, Cinderella. Owner, Miss J.R. Cathcart. 112, Sadie, born September 1909. Owner, Mrs. T.M. Ryder. Price, $5. Class 82, Silver Tabby, Male. 113, Silver Stripes, born 1905. James II, Bunny, breeder Mrs. Collingwood, owner Miss Cathcart. Class 83, Silver Tabby, female. 114, Sweet Alice, born 1906, Sir Thomas Sylvia, breeder Mrs. F. I. Palmer, owner Miss F. Y. Mathis. 115, Sylvia, born March 1908, Blackie, Silver Boy. 
breeder, Mrs. O'Connor, owner, Mrs. George Yates. 116. Dame Fortune, born 1905, Sweet William, Dame Fortune, breeder, Miss Booney, owner, Miss J.T. Cathcart. Class 84. Silver Male. 118. Silver Boy, born 1907, owner, Mrs. J.C. Michelson. Class 90. Orange or Cream. 119. Sunray, born 1908, owner, Miss J.R. Cathcart. Class 94. A.C. Tabby. 120. Inspector, born 1907, owner, L.R. Gans. 121. Debbie, born 1908, Silver Stripes, Sweet Alice, owner and breeder, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis, price $10. Class 96, Siamese, male. 122, Romeo Siam, born 1906, breeder L.F. Swift, owner Mrs. H.G. Dykehouse. 123, Siam de Paris, owner Mrs. J.R. Cathcart. Class 97, Siamese female. 124, Duchess, owner, Mrs. J.R. Cathcart. Class 98, Manx, male. 125, Bunny, owner, Miss J.R. Cathcart. Class 99, Manx, female. 126, Boblet, owner, Miss Helen Woodruff Smith. Class 100, Russian, male. 127, Speedwell of Bath, born 1906. The Muscovite, Madri Mai. Breeder, Miss Bailey. Owner, Miss J.R. Cathcart. Class 104, AOC, Tabby with White, Neuter. 128, Bo, born 1903. Breeder, Miss F.Y. Mathis. Owner, Miss L.M. French. Class 105, AOC, neuter. 129, Gray Boy, owner, Miss Cathcart. Class 107, Manx, neuter. 130, CFF, 341. Ion, IOL, owner, Miss Johnson. Class 109, Black. 131, Black Regret, born February 1909. Owner, Miss L.G. Hopkins. Class 111, Smokes. 132, Button, born 1909. Owner, Mrs. T.M. Ryder. Price, $5. Class 113, Silver. 133, Bluebell, born March 1909. Owner, Miss T.M. Ryder. Price, $3. 134, Frida, born 1909. Silver Boy, Marvel, Mrs. George Yates, for sale. 135, Sisonsby, born 1909, Silver Boy, Sweet Alice, breeder and owner, Mrs. F.Y. Mathis. Class 115, Orange or Tabby. 136, Blondie, born May 1909, owner, Mrs. T.M. Ryder, price $10. 137, Lionel. Owner, Mrs. Brooker. Class 116, Cream or Tortoiseshell. 138, Ginty, born 1909. 
owner Mrs. George Yates, for sale. Class 117, AOC. 139, Dan, born May 1909, Silver Boy, Marvel, owner Mrs. George Yates, for sale. 140, Diamond, born May 1909, Silver Boy, Marvel, owner Mrs. George Yates, for sale. List of Exhibitors A. Albin, Mrs. Broad Street, Stamford, Connecticut. B. Brace, Mrs. E. L. 473 Frost Avenue, Rochester, New York. Barnett, Mrs. P. T., 112th Street, New York. Borodarn, L. B., 2333 Broadway, New York. Brooker, Master Willie, Norton Heights, Connecticut. C. Cathcart, Miss Jane R., Oradell, New Jersey. D. Dutcher, Dr. C. C., 247 Forest Avenue, Buffalo, New York. Dyke House, Mrs. H. G., Grand Rapids, Michigan. F. Furness, Mrs. H. V., 152 West 131st Street, New York. Furness, Dr. William, 152 West 131st Street, New York. French, Mrs. L. M., Norton Heights, Connecticut. G. Grant, Mrs. S. D., 192 Upland Road, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Grands, L. R., 3 Clark Street, Hartford, Connecticut. Gould, Miss Ella, Springdale, Connecticut. Gregory, Helen, Wilton, Connecticut. H. Hurd, Mrs. John, 14 Milton Road, Brookline, Massachusetts. Hopkins, Laura Gould, 103 East 15th Street, New York. I. Isham, Charlotte T., 211 High Street, Hartford, Connecticut. J. Johnson, Miss M., 54 West 140th Street, New York. K. Kenny, Mrs. R. W., 516 South Highland Avenue, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Crow, Miss J. R., 196 Center Street, Orange, New Jersey. M. McCoon, Mrs. R. V., Oyster Bay, New York. Mathis, Mrs. F. Y., Norton Heights, Connecticut. Mitchelson, Mrs. J. C., Tariffville, Connecticut. McKenzie, Mrs. J. K., 3 Lamberton Street, New Haven, Connecticut. Middleton, Miss Mary, 272 West 128th Street, New York. R. Ryder, Mrs. T. M., 35 Pearl Street, Middleborough, Massachusetts. Reginald, Mrs., 2441 7th Avenue, New York. S. Smith, Mrs. H. W., Linden Lodge, Stamford, Connecticut. Snyder, W.J., Hartford, Connecticut. Street, Mrs. E.A., 33 Maple Street, New Haven, Connecticut. Stark, Mrs. George, Norton Heights, Connecticut. T. Tuttle, Mrs. G.S., Alexander Street, Dorchester, Massachusetts. Tuttle, Mr. G.S., Alexander Street, Dorchester, Massachusetts. Travis, Mrs. L.H., 166 West 129th Street, New York. U. Ucordhart, Rochester, New York. W. Wiswell, Mrs. D.B., 
Walnut Street, Newtonville, Massachusetts. Waterbury, Miss C.P., Springdale, Connecticut. White, Fanny, Chester, Connecticut. Walker, Mrs. John, Riverside, Connecticut. Wood, Mrs. M., Rochester, New York. Y. Yates, Mrs. George, Jr., Tariffville, Connecticut. End of Cat Show Department from the Catalog Program for the Connecticut 1909 Fair by the Connecticut Fair Association. Chapter 7 of Notes on the Parish of Redenhall with Halston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Church Warden's Accounts, Book Number One, from 1573 to 1699, by Charles Candler. The earliest volume of churchwardens' accounts remaining in the parish church at Redenhall bears on the cover two labels. The lower is inscribed, In the town chest belonging to the parish of Halston is contained the churchwardens' accounts of the said parish from the year 1573 to 1768 in a regular succession in two books except three years entries near the beginning of each book which are lost out thereof collected together september the fifth seventeen eighty six by me edmund gillingwater overseer samuel bennett churchwarden 1573 item collected upon plough monday one pound and a penny received of buck for house farm eight shillings item paid to john little for the scripturing of the church item paid for paper and wafer bread eightpence item paid for supplying the bill sevenpence item paid for writing the bill of register one shilling and fourpence item paid for the registering of said bill one shilling item paid for wine at easter and washing of the linen item paid for one bushel and d of lime and the fetching fifteen eighty five paid unto the masons for anchoring of the steeple twelve pounds twenty one quarts of malmsey at nineteen pence and one quart of claret wine at ten pence scorg the lectern received of mr braben for the burial of two of his children in the church thirteen shillings and fourpence received of john cook for burying his brother thomas cook in the church 
six shillings and eightpence received more of jane moulton executor of the last will and testament of thomas moulton late of halston deceased which was given by the last will and testament of the said thomas received john hutchinson rector three shillings and fourpence fifteen eighty seven eighty eight received of machin the drover for repairs of his father's grave fourpence received of edward bacon generally for his child's grave six shillings and eightpence fifteen eighty nine item given to one ralph mason his brief dwelling without temple bear court middlesex sixpence item given to john young of bircham county somerset merchant for his loss at sea tenpence fifteen ninety item received of thomas corbyn for a legacies given by his father's will towards the recreations of parish church of reddenhall ten shillings item paid for the witchcrafts of the court at stratton one shilling and fourpence item received for bread and wine twelve shillings and eightpence item received for clerk's wages one pound one shilling and sixpence item received of john mendham for the fourth part of bread and wine and other charges eleven shillings fifteen ninety one paid to a gather for the loss of a sheep one shilling paid for eight pints of mascadin eight shillings and tuppence paid for bread for the communion one shilling paid to thomas fail in norwich for the relief of the prisoners eightpence paid to john ward's wife for bread and beer for the ringers on the coronation day one shilling fifteen ninety three item laid out for bread and wine with other charges about the church and bells one pound thirteen shillings and fourpence item laid out for three loads of straw for the town-house with the carrying of the straw one shilling and sixpence item paid to buck for his wages and clerkship one shilling and sixpence paid him more for his wages ninepence paid to harley being sexton for one year eightpence fifteen ninety four imprimis one new service book seven shillings and sixpence item for the prayer book sixpence 
item laid out for one citation one shilling fifteen ninety five paid for dr bilson's book three shillings and sixpence paid for the ten commandments one shilling and sixpence paid to robert ray of hingham collection for burnan fourpence fifteen ninety six item paid for a prayer book for the queen's majesty tuppence item paid at the bishop's visitation for our captives in turkey two shillings and sixpence item paid at london for a bible and the carriage of the same one pound thirteen shillings and fourpence one old bible was sold unto baxter by james thompson for ten shillings fifteen ninety seven item paid to bryant doggett for the pulpit raising two shillings and eightpence item paid to john suntley for hanging the seat tenpence item paid for a prayer book sixpence item paid for a doss or cushion for the minister's seat sixpence item to simon warner gatherer for the poorhouse of walsingham item to christopher manners for a burning item to thomas cranwood gatherer for the hospital of mile end item to thomas carrow of claydon gatherer for a burning item to george ranwald gatherer for the poorhouse of dunstable item to richard moore gatherer for the poorhouse of st stephen's item to richard joint gatherer for the poorhouse at madling item to a poor man on new year's day gatherer for poorhouse at st tellings sixteen hundred the account of john clews and james hall churchwardens for halston and reddenhall in anno domini sixteen hundred as followeth item to the goodman ward the constable for the main soldiers and the prisoners the fifth day of june for the half year twenty-three shillings and fivepence item laid out at the visitation tenpence item laid out at stratton court for demison fee one shilling and sixpence item laid out for our charges there one shilling item laid out for a bell rope and a bell rope's end three shillings and fourpence item laid out to the glacier for glacing of the windares 
eight shillings and sixpence item laid out to him for seven pounds of lead and one pound solder two shillings and eightpence item laid out to him for two days work one shilling and eightpence item laid out for four pounds of grease for the bells one shilling and fourpence item laid out for the bill indented one shilling and fourpence item laid out for taking in the bill at the court sixpence item laid out for the church linen washing one shilling item laid out for the lectern scarrings one shilling item laid out for ten cant rails ten feet long apiece six shillings and fourpence item laid out for nine posts at ninepence apiece six shillings and ninepence item laid out for threescore feet of plank five shillings and sixpence item laid out for twenty-four feet of rail two shillings item laid out for three feet of plank two shillings and sixpence item laid out for two rails for the gate tenpence item laid out for three store and fourteen sawn pails nine shillings and sixpence item laid out for three hundred nails one shilling and sixpence item laid out for the carrying of the timber two shillings item laid out for a bushel of lime sixpence item laid out to bryant doggett for twelve days work and a half twelve shillings and fourpence item laid out to thomas buck for four days work two shillings and eightpence item laid out to thomas stokely for the settings of the stairs one shilling and eightpence item laid out for bread and wine for the whole year one pound seven shillings item laid out for nails for the pauls fourpence received by our rate made for these charges six pounds received of the good man stanton church warden of wortwell end for the fourth part of this charge twenty-two shillings received of him for bread and wine seven shillings and threepence sixteen o nine imprimis paid to the chief constables for the maimed soldiers three pounds five shillings paid for demission fee for the decis of the king 
two shillings and eightpence paid for bread and wine for the whole year one pound eleven shillings sixteen twelve imprimis paid for a book called mr jewell's works for the church one pound six shillings item for clasps for the book of martyrs one shilling received of mr moore for breaking the church for mr holland six shillings and eightpence sixteen thirteen item paid to john allen for the frame of the hourglass threepence sixteen twenty two item paid for an hourglass for the chapel tenpence sixteen twenty three memorand there was used in lead which belongeth to the church which was at this time used about the mending of the church eighty eight pounds four score and eight pounds paid to mr john basely to the use of my lord of arundel by nicholas cook for want of a cookstole ten shillings paid ellet for leather to new bottom the tankard three shillings paid bungay for mending the tankard two shillings and sixpence paid for mending a gold pace sixpence sixteen twenty four item paid giles harcock for a rope for the great bell three shillings item paid him more for one other bell rope two shillings item paid for the turning the leads of the church four shillings and fourpence item paid for bread and beer at that time fourpence item given to three passengers at three several times one shilling and sixpence item given to irish people at another time one shilling item given to john buck for keeping the clock for the whole year five shillings item given to john and richard bork irish people their wives and children two shillings and sixpence item given to catherine dismond ellen dismond and joan dismond irish people two shillings item given to irish folks passed by letters of commendation one shilling item paid for clasps for the book of martyrs fourpence item given to elizabeth smith and anne ripley commended by the bailiffs of yarmouth two shillings 
1625. Paid for two books for the fast. Two shillings. Paid for wine and sugar for the justices. One shilling. Paid for proclaiming the fast in two markets. Eightpence. Paid for the writing the bills for the alteration of the market. Two shillings. Paid for a book of articles. Sixpence. Sixteen twenty-six. Item paid to the ringers on coronation day. One shilling. Item given by John Allen to two Irish travellers. One shilling and fourpence. Sixteen twenty-nine. Item laid out for bread and wine at Christtide. Three shillings and fourpence. Paid for bread and wine the twenty-second of March. Six shillings and tenpence. Paid for bread and wine the fourth of April. Ten shillings and eightpence. Item for clasps and mending of the book of martyrs. Two shillings. 1630 charges for bread and wine upon the following days whitsuntide the third day of october the twenty-sixth day of december the third day of april easter day the sunday after easter paid for one prayer book for the queen tuppence Paid for a book of thanksgiving for the Queen's deliverance. Tuppence. Paid for eleven yards and half a quarter of holland cloth for a surplus at two shillings and threepence a yard. One pound, five shillings. Paid for one prayer book for the coronation day. Eightpence. Paid for one yard and a half of elbrowed canvas and one yard of narrow cloth to line the king's arms with. Two shillings and threepence. 1631. Item paid for four yards of Holland to make the communion cloth and for making of it and a pillow bear to keep the surplus in nine shillings sixteen thirty two maimed soldiers and martial seas three pounds five shillings bread and wine whitsuntide st michael christtide palm sunday easter day sabbath following given to Frances Botright at three times in her need. Sixpence. Item paid for the mending of the church door-key and for a staple for the chain of the Book of Martyrs. Sixpence. Paid for Thomas Sheldrake's wife's rent. 
ended at our lady twelve shillings paid for the widow skidmore's house rent for the half year six shillings paid for ten pair of indentures for the apprentice putting forth fifteen shillings paid to the parator two shillings received for breaking up the church for the burial of nicholas cook and his wife and james spalding one pound sixteen thirty three item paid for the communion table and the fetching of it thirteen shillings item paid for a prayer book for the queen's safe delivery fourpence item paid for a holy day book sixpence item paid for washing the surplice three times and sweet water to take away the scent of soap four shillings item paid for perfume candle tuppence and sweet powder for the surplice tuppence total fourpence item given to two travellers james smith and morris dennis that came distress out of the fleet one shilling paid for a clasp and the chain for the book of martyrs sixpence sixteen thirty four item laid out for timber for repairing of the vestry and for the carrying of it one pound nineteen shillings and ninepence more for two hundred boards and for the carrying one pound paid to mr barwell for a license to take down the chamber over the vestry thirteen shillings and fourpence laid out more for a shoulder of lime ten shillings laid out more for lime one shilling paid for the carrying of the lime into the belfry fourpence laid out to the mason for his work one pound two shillings and tenpence paid for making of a soaring pit to saw the timber one shilling and tuppence paid to skinner for carpenter's work one pound six shillings and sixpence laid out to the plumber for new lead two pounds fifteen shillings and sixpence paid for eight pounds and of speaking to nail the laths three shillings and fourpence paid to the plumber for shooting of the lead and for his workmanship of laying it on two pounds paid to the carter for carrying and fetching the lead from pullham market seven shillings laid out for bread and beer when he came to take the lead off the vestry 
one shilling and sixpence laid out for wood to melt the lead two shillings and sixpence laid out for our dinners and for bread and beer for workmen three shillings for our own pains at pulham when the lead was shooting two shillings paid for the plumber's horse-meat at church and for bread and cheese for them that holp to draw up the lead two shillings and sevenpence paid for two pounds three ounces of nails to nail on the lead one shilling and fourpence paid to john rochester for glazing the vestry ten shillings and sixpence paid for beer for the mason tuppence and to the boy going twice to halston total fourpence laid out for four bushels of hair one shilling paid to roger brock for five days work about the vestry five shillings laid out for a default found in the vestry before the repairing eightpence laid out by the churchwarden of wurtwell for the work he did two shillings and fourpence sixteen thirty five item paid for writing the sentences on the walls in the church one pound ten shillings item given to a poor man taken by the turks and delivered out of slavery march the sixth one shilling paid to roger brock to fetch elmer from bungay sixpence paid for the sending of money collected for the distressed ministers sixpence given to four distressed passengers which came together eightpence given to two other passengers fourpence given to an irish woman and to another woman with two children on the twelfth of july ninepence laid out to a poor man in the church the twenty sixth of august one shilling given to a poor man undone by shipwreck varnon corbett twenty ninth of august one shilling given to three several passengers eleven pence given to a poor man by consent at christ tide two shillings and sixpence to another poor man by consent in the church one shilling given to two distressed men the first of february one shilling given to two poor women with two children much distressed one shilling and twopence item paid the twenty seventh of may 
for twenty-five pints of wine for the communion twelve shillings and sixpence more for sixteen pints of wine and a half the third of october eight shillings and threepence the twenty-fifth of december for seventeen pints of wine eight shillings and sixpence for sixteen pints of wine the eleventh of april eight shillings for twenty-two pints of wine the seventeenth of april and three quarters eleven shillings and fourpence for twenty-six pints of wine the twenty-fourth of april thirteen shillings paid for bread for the communions aforesaid five shillings laid out to make up the constable's rate three shillings and fourpence sixteen thirty six for want of a book of homilies and for want of a book for minister and for not railing in of the communion table two shillings item to goodman lynn for the rail making and removing the desk and other works in the church one pound given for the relief of a frenchman tuppence laid out at norwich for my absolution one shilling and fourpence to berman for the mat and dossers one shilling and sixpence sixteen thirty seven for mr bryden's dinner at the time of the prambulation tenpence for goodman brock's dinner at the prambulation tenpence for the king's arms one pound eleven shillings for the hood and making it one pound nine shillings for an excommunication twenty-two pence two demission fees sixteen pence total three shillings and twopence for an indictment between Redenhall and Starston, seven shillings and sixpence. For frankincense for the church and sweetwood, sixpence. For writing a note of the minister's names, one shilling. Paid to Jonathan Norton and Nathaniel Owen for engrossing the register four shillings charges dispersed for the sidemen and questmen of Redenhall fourpence a grave for mr richard frere and a child of mr tobias frere ten shillings sixteen thirty eight item for the doctor's dinner at the time of pambulation one shilling item for new binding of the book of martyrs ten shillings 
item for searching of diverse persons in the time of the smallpox five shillings sixteen thirty nine for the doctor and his wife for mr frank and his wife for mr barry's daughter and for roger brock their dinners at the perambulation six shillings given to six poor irishmen and women one shilling to a poor minister sixpence total one shilling and sixpence item for bread and wine for six several communions two pounds and twelve shillings item for the hourglass eightpence sixteen forty item for the minister's and clerk's dinner at the pambulation for bread and wine for six several communions two pounds seventeen shillings and sixpence sixteen forty one paid lynn for taking down the organ case and setting up the screen and for mending the stoles at the lower end of the church by the south door seven shillings and twopence item laid out at mr whiting's for communion wine taken the first of may nine quarts at sixteen pence the quart total twelve shillings item paid for the bread for the communion several times five shillings and threepence sixteen forty two paid for mr mower's dinner and roger brock's when the perambulation two shillings sixteen forty four may the fourth for writing out the covenant one shilling may the sixth for a copy of the rate for collection given in to the committee for the raising of two hundred thousand pounds two shillings may the fourteenth for taking down the crosses from the ends of the chapel eightpence for taking down the pictures within the chapel and defacing others ninepence june the twenty fourth to an ancient soldier for his relief twopence july the seventeenth to a poor woman dwelling near pool being stripped one shilling july the twenty sixth to four poor men that came out of lincolnshire relief august the seventh to a poor man of thetford commended to us by mr frank two shillings the same day to a tradesman of alsford who was plundered sixpence august the ninth to a poor man of alterham in the county of six near hamburg one shilling 
august the thirteenth to ellen welsh who came out of gloucestershire eightpence september the sixth to john horsley of saltfleet in lincolnshire sixpence september the ninth to william walter out of shropshire sixpence september the twentieth to richard herbert of brimmingham where was an hundred and fifty-five dwelling-house burnt by prince rupert six shillings september the twenty-seventh to ellen foster a captain's wife and to her two children one shilling november the fourth to may meredith who came out of ireland sixpence november the fifth to the ringers given five shillings same day to daniel jones of hammingham in worcestershire and to his wife and seven children eightpence november the seventh for glazing the windows at the church house five pounds november the eighth to ann jones and dorothy beals sixpence november the twenty-second to william beck and robert beck of south ferry in lincolnshire fourpence december the second to william brown twelvepence december the ninth to margaret brown and two children threepence total one shilling and threepence sixteen forty four forty five january the twentieth to honour and murray mary talgood six children and a maid their loss fifteen hundred pounds one shilling march the twenty-first to a mariner that was lame fourpence march the twenty-second to john stoneheen his wife and two children fourpence total eightpence march the twenty-fourth to john stark of lancashire with his wife and three children loss fifteen hundred pounds sixpence sixteen forty five for making the pulpit cloth and the cushion two shillings for the doss for the pulpit sixpence total two shillings and sixpence for two skins for the cushions fourteen pence for nails and speaking tuppence total one shilling and fourpence for removing the pulpit and the desk sevenpence for the sound board and setting it up one pound four shillings received as followeth for things sold for lead one pound 
five shillings and eightpence received for the three posts that stood about the font two shillings received for the surplus fourteen shillings and for the hood six shillings and eightpence total one pound and eightpence to a poor woman that came out of ireland sixpence to sixteen poor travellers for relief one shilling expenses when i went to norwich to carry the money that was gathered for leicester one shilling sixteen forty six paid to goodwife haythorpe for keeping of old goodman skipper two shillings to thomas field of glossop in the county of derby commended by mr rand two shillings to anne mullinax come out of ireland for her relief one shilling to elizabeth laddale come out of lincolnshire with five children one shilling to john hale for relief having divers of the parliament's hands to a certificate two shillings to anne moling out of staffordshire twelvepence to a poor woman out of ireland twelvepence total two shillings to four lame soldiers for relief one shilling given to seventy-two poor people at several times whereof many lame soldiers nine shillings and a penny for salad oil for the clock and grease for the bells two shillings sixteen forty-eight given to an irishman for relief sixpence to james welsh for relief fourpence total tenpence given to mary spencer and elizabeth spencer for relief eightpence to anne hunting and her four children for relief eightpence to john brooks and thomas brooks their wives and children sixpence to william grimes wife that came to have left a brief to gather one shilling for an hour-glass for the chapel eightpence sixteen fifty item to the upper bench and marshal seas three pounds five shillings item for taking down the late king's arms and sending to denton one shilling sixteen fifty one paid to a company that had an order under the hands of the committee for the irish affairs directed to the church wardens for relief two shillings sixteen fifty eight item paid william stubbs for a public basin 
three shillings and fourpence sixteen fifty nine received of mr frere for breaking up the church six shillings and eightpence the like mr granger six shillings and eightpence sixteen sixty sixty one to the ringers upon coronation day four shillings paid for mr frost's dinner when he went perambulation two shillings gave to four distressed seamen going home one shilling gave to another in the same want fourpence for brock when he went perambulation for his dinner one shilling sixteen sixty one for running eight thousand pounds weight of lead at four shillings and eightpence per hundredweight eighteen pounds thirteen shillings and fourpence for wine and bread for the sacrament five shillings and eightpence sixteen sixty two paid for the king's arms at london four pounds and five shillings for a box and bringing down two shillings total four pounds and seven shillings for a frame for the king's arms nine shillings for help to set up the king's arms and for making clean the spread eagle five shillings paid to john brown for glazing the church before the great wind two pounds six shillings and sixpence for an act made for the king's preservation fourpence paid for the surplus sixteen shillings sixteen sixty three item to john morley for drawing the ten commandments five shillings item for a master of art his hood for the minister one pound six shillings item paid to thomas Nietzsche for a town chest one pound item for writing a certificate of non-communicants item to goodman barker for carrying and bringing again the font from norwich one pound seven shillings item to martin morley for stone and for fitting and setting up the font thirteen pounds fifteen shillings to mr edwards an essex man prosecuted by the pope from silesia sixpence to several persons coming from the isle of weedy two shillings sixteen sixty three sixty four january the twelfth to a captain's wife and a doctor's wife irish persons one shilling and sixpence 
1664 given to captain hickey and his servant who were to be relieved according to his majesty's order one shilling and sixpence given unto two women whose husbands are in slavery in turkey one shilling and sixpence for scouring the flagon and the communion cup tuppence sixteen sixty five to the apparitor for two books for thanksgiving for the victory over the dutch sixpence for a quart of sack and a jug of beer for the visitors two shillings and tuppence received by the order of the justice of the peace by the hands of william rogers for obadiah skinner in absenting himself from the parish church three shillings of ferdinando reed for his wife for the like twelvepence of the wife of mr simon jacob twelvepence for the like and of henry smith three shillings for the like in all eight shillings distributed to the poor sixteen sixty six to thomas smith for a chain padlock and staple for the book of martyrs one shilling to the apparitor for the book and proclamation for the victory over the dutch sixpence given to a doctor of physic and others who came out of the isle of isa in ireland one shilling sixteen sixty seven to nathaniel owen for writing the certificates twice about taking off the charge of hearth money from the poor three shillings and sixpence the charge at the sessions about taking the hearth money of from the poor five shillings and sixpence sixteen sixty eight for planks and work about lusher's bush and cutting of it seven shillings and sixpence to two travellers having losses at sea by certificate two shillings and tenpence for a burning at loddon two shillings and sixpence to a distressed minister eighteen pence total four shillings given to several passengers whereof divers irish people and some seamen with passers one pound and ninepence sixteen sixty nine july the eighteenth to john davis a wine-cooper of london lost four thousand pounds two shillings and sixpence august the twenty-fifth to mrs butler widow of captain william butler aged eighty years eighteen pence and seven pence for her diet total two shillings and a penny 
december the fourteenth to richard white a soldier under major general lambert sixpence sixteen seventy third of april collected for six slaves in sally redeemed by thomas Wonby, merchant eight shillings and a penny sixteen seventy seventy one january the twenty first to christopher coborne gentleman's son-in-law to cole fitzwilliam one shilling and sixpence sixteen seventy one laid out to the ringers when the king passed by five shillings sixteen seventy four seventy five paid to goodman pool for killing of three foxes three shillings sixteen seventy five seventy six item for going to bungie to speak the plumber for the bowl for the font for my horse and horse meat one shilling and sixpence in relief to a seaman sixpence paid in relief to three seamen that travelled by certificate sixpence a large outlay this year for lead including the bowl for the font weighing two quarters twenty three pounds at threepence per pound nineteen shillings and ninepence sixteen seventy five item paid to samuel knights for going twice down to captain freeston's for the porch key sixpence sixteen seventy six item laid out to an ancient man that came with certificate sixpence sixteen seventy seven laid out the seventh of november at the bishop's court for four men and their horse journeys for mr mingy's henry mingy rector dinner and expenses one pound nine shillings and tuppence sixteen seventy eight seventy nine laid out the day of perambulation by edmund herring six shillings and eightpence and by john wright five shillings and eightpence total twelve shillings and fourpence given to a family that suffered great loss by fire one shilling for mending the tippet eightpence for making clean the spread eagle to robert buxton and for carriage and recarriage fifteen shillings paid robert buxton for making clean the church clock twelve shillings sixteen eighty item for want of a book of homilies and a plate to set the communion bread on both presented by visitors two shillings paid samuel knights for gathering up the stones which fell from the steeple 
one shilling. 1681 Dispersed by Henry Fenn, gentlemen. Expended at the half-moon, upon Mr. Fanton, when we made a bargain with him for rebuilding of the turret of Reddenhall steeple. Six shillings. Paid Isaac Tooley for two bottles of tent wine for the communion the day before Whit Sunday, and for two breads. Four shillings and tenpence. Paid for a bottle of claret for the visitors. One shilling. Expended upon Mr. Fanton and his men at several times whilst they were doing their work at the church. Four shillings and tenpence. Paid for a bond for Mr. Fanton to scale two for maintaining the spear or turret of the steeple. Sixpence. Expended at the sealing the bond and the concluding of all. One shilling. Paid Peter Caton for two bottles of tent wine for the communion at Christtide and for four breads. Five shillings. Paid Mr. Fanton for building the turret of the steeple and other work done about the church on my part. Fourteen pounds. Dispersed by Mr. John Doe. Paid to Mr. Brigstock for viewing of the turret of the steeple and expenses. Fourteen shillings. Paid Thomas Stubbs for a plate to set the communion bread upon. One shilling and threepence. Expended upon the workmen about the steeple. One shilling and twopence. Item paid to the Norwich Wherryman for bringing up the stone and other materials to repair the steeple. Fourteen shillings. Item paid for fetching the materials from the stave, twelve shillings, and for help to load them, one shilling, total, thirteen shillings. Item paid to Mr. Fenton for his work done in repairing the church steeple for my part, fifteen pounds, ten shillings. Item paid to Zachary Gower for fetching two loads of lime from Norwich, and carrying two loads of sand to church, and for carrying of Mr. Fenton's tools and stuff back to Norwich, one pound thirteen shillings. Item paid to John Brown for laying down the leads that were reeved up by the wind, three shillings. Sixteen eighty-two given to a poor scholar three shillings sixteen eighty four eighty five to the ringers the day of proclaiming king james the second at halston ten shillings to the ringers upon the coronation of king james the second ten shillings for the hood 
new lining with silk twelve shillings sixteen eighty six paid isaac for two bottles of wine for good friday sacrament and bread four shillings and tenpence september the twenty seventh gave to the relief of mrs elizabeth long and mary penrose whose husbands were taken slaves in Saley by the turks their loss was four thousand pounds and their redemption four hundred three shillings laid out for a printed book to be read in the church against marrying people without license sixpence october the first gave to two poor widows whose husbands were slain in the west sixpence paid for making clean of the eagle six shillings and eightpence item paid zachary gower for bringing the eagle to town and carrying of it back to church one shilling and sixpence item gave the men that helped to carry it to the cart and carrying it up to the church sixpence sixteen ninety september the eleventh then given to the ringers for the king's safe arrival from ireland two shillings october the twentieth then given to the ringers for ringing on a thanksgiving day two shillings and sixpence march the twenty first sixteen ninety one agreed that from henceforth the money paid or given by the church wardens to travellers or seamen or for ringing the chapel bell on sundays shall not be allowed by the parishioners nor the charge of the perambulation except five shillings per annum signed joseph wogan roger bransby john dove james twist john witherby sixteen ninety one october the twenty second paid to the ringers on the king's return from ireland six shillings and eightpence to the ringers on the fourth of november being the king's birthday five shillings november the twenty sixth paid for ringing the thanksgiving day sixteen ninety two the further accounts of richard culver and john witherby occasioned by reason of the general not being at stratton as it formerly used to be which was kept at norwich upon may the twentieth sixteen ninety two by reason of bishop moore's first visitation paid to the ringers when the news came of the victory obtained at sea six shillings and eightpence sixteen ninety three paid the ringers november the twenty sixth being a day of thanksgiving 
appointed by their majesties proclamation five shillings paid for a proclamation and prayer book for the monthly fast one shilling sixteen ninety four ninety five paid for tolling the bell the fifth of march being the day of the queen's funeral two shillings for a book of cannon and a napkin four shillings sixteen ninety five paid for a book of injunctions sixpence paid mr freeman for linen cloth for the sentences in the church five shillings paid the ringers on the king's return six shillings paid mr page for writing the sentences in the church fourteen shillings and tenpence sixteen ninety eight paid for a tippet as by receipt one pound ten shillings for a proclamation against immorality fourpence for twelve and a half yards of holland for a surplus at three shillings and eightpence total two pounds five shillings and tenpence for making the surplus five shillings for mending the old surplus two shillings and sixpence sixteen ninety nine for the act of parliament against swearing fourpence for a proclamation against swearing sixpence for a prayer book for the fast day for the french protestants sixpence end of the church warden's accounts book number one by charles candler